Hello folks, welcome to Marvel Noise. I'm your host, David Price. Thank you for joining me today. You are going to hear uh, from Andrew, Kevin, and Steve. They're going to go through some more Thunderbolt stuff. And uh, Andrew, Kevin, Jerry McDade, and Steve are going to cover every Marvel issue numbered 250 because it is Marvel Noise episode uh, 250. And uh, I'm looking forward to that, uh, big time. I did not get to read, uh, as much as I wanted to really hardly, uh, hardly anything. I do want to, um, I do want to thank Derek for putting the show together last week, uh, right before I was getting ready to sit down and put the episode together. Uh, it was a huge rumble of thunder coming through our area, and uh, actually the, the house did shake a little bit. Uh, the lights flickered, and then the power went off uh, for less than a minute. Came back on for a minute or two, uh, then went off again for another half minute or so, uh, and then stayed on, but um, it was still a little... a little crazy. The sky did not look pretty, so I figured instead of risking it, instead of... Uh, trying to put something together or finishing an episode. And then before I upload it, uh, losing power, I figured I would, um, enlist the aid of, uh, of our web host. And, uh, and thank you for that. Um, I did read actually, um, I read, uh, I just finished infinity Gauntlet number three, where, uh, Thanos is basically playing the role of the bad guy from the third karate kid movie. And, uh, and the art was, of course, fantastic by uh, Dustin Weaver. It was a really good story to introduce some uh, some other characters to this uh, to this band of uh, merry heroes, if you want to call them that. Uh, I also finished Punisher, Red Punisher number twenty. That is the end of the Nathan Edmondson, Rich, Mitch, Jared's Punisher arc. Um, and that is a Secret Wars tie-in in a similar way that the previous uh, issue was, where uh, Frank was walking out of the bar where he took care of some business. This ends uh, with uh, an incursion happening, uh, but Frank still did what he had to do. Uh, and that's pretty much um, what I would expect. I, I it, It's the... It, pretty much is the end of the world as far as Frank's concerned in the Marvel Universe. So it was a fitting end, um, but it uh, it's still kind of weird to see Frank in the Marvel Universe after spending so much time with him like in uh, the Max world. Um, but still, he is a character in the 616, so uh, it is fitting in that regard. Also read Moon Knight number 17, uh, Colin Bunn, Dan Atkins, Tom Palmer, that uh, Dan Brown on colors. That was a pretty trippy issue. You know, the things that I have read, I, as usual, have been really, really enjoying them. So I'm going to get back to the siege number two, and then maybe I'll give Guardians of Nowhere another shot. Uh, Sins events seems to be really high on that, but I'm going to let the uh, the guys do their thing. And uh, yeah, that's that's uh, that's pretty much it. So enjoy this episode 250 with the guys not only covering Thunderbolts, but also uh, running down the list of all of the 
issues numbered 250 that Marvel has put out, uh, published in chronological order. Take everybody. Bye-bye. Welcome back, Marvel Noise fans. Here we are again, Justice Like Lightning. Thunderbolt segment returns. With issue 250. (laughs) (laughs) No, they didn't quite make it. With uh, me, Andrew the LA Rabbit, broadcasting from sunny Los Angeles. uh, Whirlwind X, Kevin, up in Ontario, where good things grow. Yeah, in, in, in sunny Ontario as well. And most important, holding down the fortress from the bunker deep within uh, the mid-central New York region. We don't want to give away too many specifics. Super Steve Riker. Far away from the sunshine in my box down here. And most of you are probably in the know, but for those of you that aren't, and this is your first podcast, we are covering Marvel's original Thunderbolts. Good guys, posing like bad guys, posing like good guys, posing like bad guys. Depending on where the wheel stops, that's what the storyline we're in. And we have hit the late 50s in issue numbers. We left off with an exciting cliffhanger with our original Thunderbolts team returning to face Graviton. Dun, dun, dun. Kevin, do you want to give us the rundown of our current team? Okay, the rundown. Baron Zemo, Citizen V. He's a swordsman. He was using the body of John Watkins III, who is the grandson of the original citizen of me. He's a little weird with the whole body thing. But you help him or he threatens you, it, it seems to be the case right now. <laughs> Carla Moonstone. Uh, she has a moonstone gem that allows her to do all sorts of things, but manipulating people is really her thing. Melissa Songbird. She has improved sonic powers to suggest you treat yourself and buy that new stereo system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, plus he has new Sonic equipment. You have uh, Eric Dallas. Do we have a one name for them? I don't know. Uh, Eric used to be Atlas, anyhow. Uh, Eric came back through Dallas. They're sharing the same body in red bubblegum ionic form. Then you have Abe Mac 3. He flies with a snazzy new suit of armor. Norbert the Fixer. He's the resident tech guy with the coolest tech pack around. The kids in the playground will be totally jealous plenty to climb on he's wearing apparatus oh i guess we should do some next thunderbolts too maybe clint hawkeye he's an ex-avenger he's hanging out with the chain gang ogre he's gone Haley, jolt dead again charlie charcoal also <laughs> dead yeah it's his first time being dead just the first time and uh graviton the recurring nemesis of the thunderbolts has uh, we're really at the peak of a long-running side plot of him building his resources, honing his powers, and executing his plan for world domination and world reshaping in his image. And along the way, he has acquired the assistance of Moonbird, Carla, the one that you said <laughs> likes to manipulate people. And we have been enjoying the watching her and wondering what her allegiances are and whether she's manipulating him towards 
her advantage or towards his end goals or if she's still a good guy and trying to keep him under wraps. But Graviton has uh, put his plan in motion. He's got this little weird alien, uh, like, Jawa guy who hangs around him and seems to, like, do his bidding like a little administrative sidekick guy. Um, But there's something going on with him where he's, like, siphoning some power from Graviton. But Graviton's got so much power that he's able to take all of the heroes in the world pretty much and throw them up into outer space uh, just high enough that they can't do anything and hang them upside down. And he himself starts reshaping the world, lifting cities left and right like in the last Avengers movie. And our team of Thunderbolts has just shown up on scene to see him in all his glory and in all his power. They're never going to be able to stop him this time. Yeah, I, I thought the Graviton's little lackey there. I, I I thought that it might have been a woman at one point too. It's you know it's kind of it's kind of hard to tell. Yeah, androgynous an alien. alien, right? Wrapped up in robes, but a real toady of an alien. Yeah, always sycophantic, bowing and scraping to Graviton's will. But fifty-eight finds us with a cover of three of our heroes flying out of us, uh, bubblegum. Atlas slash Reardon slash Dallas slash I don't know what we're gonna call, and then uh, Songbird and Mach Three. Yeah, I and like this the is cover. brought to us. Yeah, it's fun. It's uh, the red bubblegum and then the pink and then the blue from Mach Three in the background, the blue with lightning, and we're um it's a uh, Nicienza, Zercher and Vey, but they also pulled in two additional anchors, uh, Adams and Parada, and then it's a Comicraft and Hi-Fi design for the calculator. So it's really a village to build this particular book, and it jumps right into the action of them pouring it on, as Mach 3 says, by blasting into Graviton and the caption boxes, tally up the injuries to him. Yeah, he's he's looking really hardcore here with getting shot up, and then he's popping out all the bullets. But the Thunderbolts are really pouring it on. I mean, four pages, they're just... Boosh, boosh, boosh. I mean, this is not at all what I expected. I expected, like, a lot of posturing, a lot of, um, you know, big speeches back and forth, a lot of the good guys uh, who are the bad guys who are the good... Ah, don't even get me started. Uh, <laughs> but a lot of our um, our adventurers being, um, you know, held down by Graviton's power and his immense strength as he really flexes his muscles... It doesn't go that way at all. We've had all this buildup, and they are mopping the floor with Graviton. It's awesome. Well, as, as we said with the Redeemers, like, you have one chance, and someone might have a good plan, but if everyone is not in on it, he's going to take you down mighty quick. And also early on, the Fixer was the one techno that had figured out that Maria was in trouble. So in this brutal sequence, he just splutch and blast the, the alien's brain out. Like <laughs> I know you see them completely. floating around when like they they're like creating like another problem, and like their brains are like leaking out. But they're you you like see them like off in the distance like that, and you're like ew. Yeah, and Carla's particularly conflicted. As Steve said, she was working. Graviton from the inside, so she has to figure out, like, does she want him to take over? Does she want to help them? Like, what what are they going to do with this? Even though she's the one who's the closest to him and his confidant, and she's the one who, in some ways, has the most ability to affect him either way, like you said, there's only one chance and only one time and everyone's acting on it. She's the one who 
has to take pause to figure out what her move should be. And uh, that just, you know, in the meantime, everyone else is just pouring it on. And then as uh, most of us predicted, uh-huh. suddenly uh, there's uh, some energy was coalescing. Of the electricity hopping amongst all their components. And guess who's back? Bubblegum Jolt. Bubblegum Jolt? Blue Bubblegum? <laughs> Blue Bubblegum Jolt is back in action. Yeah, just and as Citizen I think when B we... is, is about to shoot a Graviton in the back of the head. And he's like, ah, we can sacrifice uh, billions of the world's major cities. It's not a big deal. Well, that's the problem. All the cities that Graviton has raised up around the world with his powers would fall um, if he shot him in, a, in the head. So now what do we do? we got to pretty much figure out a way to get him to cooperate if only we had someone who had some ability to talk with him. Oh, isn't that supposed to be Moonstone's thing? Isn't she supposed to be the psychiatrist and everything? Yeah, but she's she's got the little... She, you can see the little frowns going... Her... her Brow is furrowed right through her her metal mask. Which is, uh, <laughs> a nice touch, but yes, she's certainly conflicted. But she needs to us, uh, you know, level up here and, and uh, step up to the plate. I like how she's she's trying to not make a decision, and it's like, oh, Graviton needs help, and she's like, uh, he needs to do it on his own because uh, he'll empower himself. Right, that's the ticket. I really think even with uh, multiple anchors and everything, there's some good face work. As you were intimating with the the furrowed brow and everything, so I really appreciated all the the because there's a lot going on about the, the insides of them. Yep, and even for yeah. a new artist, Zercher doesn't have um, just a few stock face poses that he's using particularly you know it, it, the things change around where we get up shots we get side in this way that way i i appreciate the effort that he put into uh making his pages more dynamic and not just giving us uh, the same face and we also have a bit of a cutaway to our escaped fugitives as we talked about hawkeye is on the run having been doing prison time and he's with Cottonmouth, and the only guy who gets another full name Sam Smithers, which is Plan, yeah. and um, this character Headlock that none of us had ever heard before, because he's really just a cipher for the person that was masterminding the breakout, Professor Marvin Flum, aka Mentallo. But I just know in the last episode we all were like, who's that guy? Oh, that's why we don't know who he is. <laughs> and uh, the big the big plan is basically that Justin Hammer had hidden away. Right, and they're going to uh, figure out a way to disengage the manacles that they are wearing that connect them and keep them together. And once they get free of that, they're going to go seek out this ultimate weapon. And this is the plan that Hawkeye has been waiting to hear about. Oh, the Infinity Gauntlet? (laughs) We get some intimation that uh, there was a visit from Dum Dum Dugan speaking to him, and we can only put two and two together to assume that uh, Dum Dum has set Hawkeye on robot. his path. <laughs> Robo it's Dum no Dum. longer Robo Dum Dum. Well, the other thing I like is Hawkeye calls Headlock. Yeah, Headlock, what's next? But it's in quotes. I'm <laughs> wondering, did he air quote? <laughs> and so um, the other nice touch that Carla, when she's working Graviton, she transforms her appearance so she's in a dress. And then when the other Thunderbolts, particularly Citizen V slash Zemo, butt in, like you can tell she sort of half flashes her old uniform to yell at him. 
Yeah. So it's half the purple dress, half that. But we found out what Mareel was up to. I'm going to guess M apostrophe R-E-E-L is Mareel, but feel free to correct me. And right out of an Avengers movie, what what is Mareel's plan? Oh, to bring the people from Cosmos to Earth, because that's an old subplot that... Oh, wait, no, that's not what's happening. He's using Graviton's... Well, actually, it's very clever <laughs> that all the times that Graviton has been, like, defeated and collapsed into himself, into his own black hole making, um, which has been... Uh, happened several times. He has encountered these guys, these the alien guys, and they keep rescuing him. Is it the... Is that how you yeah. say it, Steve? Pata. The okay. pata. <laughs> so the pata, they well, uh, keep rescuing him, and but all along they've been setting him up so that they can use his power to as a gateway to infiltrate Earth. And Moonstone realizes that that this Muriel fella was, or not fella, this androgynous Muriel <laughs> um, was manipulating her to manipulate graviton to increase his strength and hone his power so that they would have a finer energy source more fine-tuned uh antenna to use to breach our dimensional gateway and they've done so and they've got like like robo mechs and like they're riding on things that look like dinosaur sharks with lasers <laughs> shooting out of their heads and things and they are a formidable looking force yeah, that, I really like that page where they're coming out of the portal. I'm like, that is pretty nice. There's like old runes all over their yeah. uh, armor and stuff. They, they're they're cool. Yeah, they're especially because Mariel never looked threatening, and these guys are the exact opposite. Yeah, but like, um, he was priestly. Uh, we were all wondering what the V Battalion must have a secret plan to save the day, right? They're going to really pitch in and help all these people that are dying and in trouble. Now let's just pull our guy out of there. Yeah, with with our. Uh, <laughs> Fancy scroll teleporter. I mean, did that strike you guys as kind of coward? Like, I understand they ran away, but all they care about is getting Citizen V. Like, you think they'd be trying to do something else, right? Hey, they know where their bread is buttered. They got a, a Citizen V limited series coming up that <laughs> is... uh, they've got to get uh, be in position for. So we'll follow them soon enough. Yeah, and they are still sent uh, the thunderbolts their armor so and their whatever else they they needed to fight so they're like they did something but they continue just kind of work graviton mainly moonstone over to explain you know like we're gonna have to drop them cities because you're using too much power and graviton doesn't want to hear that he's like no i can handle all this myself but the more power he uses the worse it goes for them and that's when he has a an interesting reveal oh, about that that hardcore scene we saw when he killed that poor australian this is a deep cut back. this is totally, a deep cut <laughs> totally strange because they're going back and forth at each other she's like she finally comes to the to the lays it on the bottom line like suck it up show us you're a real man and don't let the world get taken over by not trying to rule the world yourself you know and you know, be like the nuclear bomb. Be tough that you have one, but don't don't use it. You know, and he's like, oh yeah, well, <laughs> you know that that piece of sand, that grain of sand that I flung around the world. I, I was surprised. I, I didn't remember that he had he had killed off that uh, potential citizen V or Crimson Cowl or um, you know how every 
minor character that shows up in these books you always think there's someone but uh, yeah it was diana stockbridge the girl that carla manipulated when she was younger that showed up for what maybe two or three panels it wasn't much hey every uh, death in this book is important ask the poor arabian knight but that was kind of the final straw where she's like Ugh, you're pathetic you loser the reason you lost is because you let them lose and that yeah. sort of re- realization is what causes him to lower the cities and mend the earth and save the superheroes but the problem is he drained himself too much and while he's closing it one of the fire and energy spear that also blows right through his midsection ouch yeah. sucks to be graviton and yeah. also well in her final um straw to him she also says that uh you know, all of this helping you, it was all just to get off on manipulating somebody powerful, basically. Wow. Uh, that That's part of the last straw thing, too. Finally, we all this time we've been wondering what her motivation was back and forth, and it was basically just because she had an opportunity to, to, to toy and manipulate. But we're stuck with a impending black hole that's going to destroy the whole planet. Uh-oh. But the Thunderbolts have a plan. They're gonna it's lose the just a, a little, a little part of the Earth, and uh, but they they might. Uh, they don't know what's gonna really. It is kind of vague what what exactly where they would go or what's gonna happen. But yeah, Songbird's gonna make one of those bubbles like she always does, one of those uh, sound constructs. And uh, since she has to construct it on one side, uh, Abe's gonna be inside. So you know they're they're gonna be separated. Hmm. And the people on the inside ain't it doesn't look too good for them. Except of course for Citizen V. Because you know what happens at the last minute. The V battalion teleporter fires up. Yeah, and of course this plays into that whole thing. They're like, What? He's escaping? <laughs> like, oh it's emo. <laughs> But the fixer reaches out and touches him and seems to short circuit something. So nothing is happening as it's intended here, at least the potential for nothing predictable to happen at this point. And when everything goes blank with a white panel at the bottom of the page, everybody's gone. Everyone's disappeared and they could be anywhere. Yeah. It looks like citizen V's legs teleport away, but the top half of his body doesn't. That might not be good. Yeah. Well, it looks like he turns into half zip tone is what it looks like. Yeah, or the two thousand and one equivalent. That's a that's a teleporter effect. It's like in the next generation when you stir Hmm. the water and you have the sparkles in it. That's the transporter effect. So uh, Melissa Songbird, she she was the only one who wasn't inside the sound construct. So she's the only one left until you have the the last full page spread. It's a big trippy. Angar the Screamer, all done in bubblegum form, but with more detail. Angar the Screamer. Like more like a sound construct. Even well, as, as you guys the belt don't buckle. know that. <laughs> I, I didn't realize prior to this that uh, Screaming Mimi and Songbird were the same characters. So what? <laughs> I actually was more aware of Screaming Mimi prior to our starting this Thunderbolt project. <laughs> or, yeah, well, sometime it was revealed to me that I'm like, wait. That's screaming, Mimi. <laughs> That's, I thought they were separate characters. But yes, Angar the Screamer and Angar. Screaming Mimi reunited. He's such a kooky character, Angar the Screamer. Um, 
uh, first appeared in Daredevil 100, uh, written by uh, Steve Gerber, created by Steve Gerber. Oh, so he is just the type of wacky, lefty, hippie, Age of Aquarius y, big belt buckle, Robert Plant, jean jacket, vest open with the chest showing. He's and awesome. band. He's a super villain, you know, that has a van. You know what I mean? Yeah, oh, yeah, it does. And and if it's a rockin', don't come a knockin'. <laughs> well, they could have been, uh, there could have been a band, you know, like Angar and the Screamers, and Screaming Mimi would have been in it. Wasn't that in that first uh, comedy what if <laughs> issue? Didn't they do an Angar and the Screamers? <laughs> they might have. It, it seems really obvious, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so issue 59. Well, there's something a little bit different about this issue. Oh, new Marvel is sinking their teeth into the line, trying to be all edgy and different. It's well, not said month. It was a December of 2001, and it was a line-wide project to have no dialogue in the issues. <laughs> I think it's a good idea to, when appropriate, for your plot to use sound effects or street signs or something. Well, I was thinking the okay. letters this month too. It's like they they didn't get paid, but some of these books kept them employed. So they're not letters; they're sound. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they're sound. Comicraft is credited with the sound, <laughs> not the letters. That's funny. And the uh, pretty much, if not in every book, in a, in a lot of books, they also enclosed the scripts for the issues in the back so you could get a little sense of the process of how the writer wrote for a silent issue but I think it was more like justifying the paycheck yeah and <laughs> while they only had 13 pages of uh, script here you could read the entire script on marvel.com but I don't know if they're still there anymore probably not and uh, guys uh, guess who's coming back guess what important Thunderbolts figure from the past is back uh, working on this issue Oh, yeah, Mark Bagley is back. What? And it's still Nessienza with Alve Inks by himself this time and high-five colors. But, yeah, Bagley's back. Hmm. All so, right. Yeah, the, the I'll whole go along with it. Oh, yeah. Jeez, I was, I was about to skip our, our, our cover. Whoops. The cover isn't and Bagley, it's... though, because there's feet. <laughs> the cover is her. Oh, dare you, Steve. And it's... um. It appears to be a songbird superimposed over a separate background. It's a little discerning. Like it, the, it looks like it was two separate images. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which is weird. She's like laying um, in it's... a nest of sound construct wings. Maybe that's anger. All right. Let's find out. But the, their conceit for the sound is that it's being absorbed. I would assume by the, you know, the battle between. Anger of the Screamer yeah. and Screaming Mimi, and they start out with a couple of pages, and he seems to get more defined throughout the course of the battle, visually. Uh, and vaguely with the crazy, I mean, all of a sudden he's so jacked up in his arms. I mean, he's better when he's a you know, thinner dude, and uh, it's, he goes, he gets hulked out. I like how he's stolen all, like, people are trying to talk. And it's yeah. like all through this issue, it's like he's Rob Sound and and people talking, all the, all the stuff like that. Like you even see a a pop can just going down the street, and it's even being robbed out of sound. Like anything that would make sound or could make sound is like being robbed. 
It's like people are gasping almost yeah. for air as they're trying to speak. Exactly. And during the course of the battle, he also transformed songbirds' feet into hooves. Oh, jeez. I knew you'd you'd notice something like that, Andrew. I love the the panel of her walking off and, like, there's just her legs disappear into these ridiculous clouds of smoke that just cover up his feet so he didn't have to draw feet. Hilarious. Uh, They'd go with sort of a sepia-esque tone for some of the flashbacks. Now, my... I mean, having just read these, I think this is one issue that if you just picked up out of random, you'd be really hard-pressed to suss some of the stuff out. I mean, they do give us text boxes for Screamer and Melissa Gold screaming Mimi Songbird, Mm -hmm. at least. But it seems like a lot of it would be, if you didn't have the background, like when they flash back to the bank robbery where he shot and things like that, I don't know that you'd pick up, for instance, that he was a separate character called Scream. Right. We only know having read all these, I wouldn't have picked up when the fixer like cuts something out or something. Like like it just seems like I appreciate they were given this task, but it it seemed like it felt a little gimmicky because it really could have used some words at different points. I mean, they even used the word scream as a big long, you know, um, sound effect when, when scream is formed which is kind of funny they they just use like a lowercase r or v in place of the r yeah Uh, but it's supposed to be like kind of in your face right there well the other thing is on the page opposite that the guy the csa guys letters it pops off his helmet (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) oops (laughs) and now i'm thinking andrew i i uh don't recall each issue of the nuff said stuff uh which was the name given to this uh little project of having the soundless or the dialogueless issues um but i'm thinking that that might have been a problem mind wide of if you didn't really know the characters if they were going to have a story that still felt like it was in continuity I think it would be pretty challenging to have a silent issue and bring everybody up to speed too. Well, how about Spider-Man? Didn't he fight like mimes or something during that month? Like I thought there was some clever plotish ones. Like if you, of course, Thunderbolts, if they're trying to run like 50 subplots, like it's not going to work. But like, I think some books got around it pretty well. I think that's where they had the big problem was all these flashbacks, like the conceit of, you can't speak because he's sucked up all the sound worked. It was that there's like five or six flashbacks and you got to discern what's going on where if it yeah. just been a slug class with Melissa and him, cause it explains like the other cheat they do is when she runs into shield, her carapace is flushed out. So because they can't talk, they write on little tablets back and forth. And that shows that shield needs to re build, but it's, it felt, I don't know, it did just felt like I liked that there's an idea here, but it, the gimmick got in the way of the story because that yeah. dragged it out an extra. So it takes four pages for them to figure out Yeah, she needs her shielding fix, which should have been like three panels or whatever. Although it was um, showing that they were all in on the fact that like they've all had their sound taken away versus their voices taken away versus it being just an issue that happens to happen without dialogue, which I know some of the enough said issues were that here's a thing that, you know, similar to that Buffy, the vampire slayer episode with the gentleman where they all had their, 
voice is taken away. This is what you do. You would be like, hey, grab a pad, communicate. There are ways to communicate with people. And um, they kind of had to, to do some tech stuff here. And uh, I, I felt like it was a really just an acknowledgement of the fact that they were all experiencing this phenomenon. It isn't just a case that there was no one for Spider-Man to talk to on this adventure. So he never said a word. You know what I mean? Yes. Oh, like I said, I think the conceit was a good idea, but it just felt kind of padded or maybe different choices I would have preferred. Fair and the whole thing, in hindsight also, so the, the shield builds her this weapon and she goes and attacks him. And he seems to smile before he's attacked and he seems to have wanted to have been attacked, but how are we to have known that? Like, it just seemed like more of a convenient turn yeah. than anything that was justified in the storyline. Like, so he wanted to be destroyed? Like, why? And the other thing is our previous exposure to the screen, it didn't have much sentience. So I guess it's grown in, I I don't, without having dialogue or word balloons, the transition between Scream and Angar is completely lost and somewhat perplexing in his decision. Because after she destroys him, you see thank you is left in weird letters in the sky. Yeah, he's freed from his... I mean, think about it. Angar died, and he's been stuck as this in her um, chest plate. Well, I think maybe that might not be the worst place, but it's not her brassiere. It's her <laughs> chest plate. Uh, and then uh, he manifests as this scream dude. And I mean, this is finally getting put to rest here. And she's getting to lose having to have uh, this containment unit around her throat. And I'm sure the scientists will all... Uh, uh, you know, be able to help her figure out that. But first, they all have to go to eye doctors because they're all exotrope, exotropes. They all have, like, their eyes are all drifting out to the right. Oh, <laughs> that really bothered me, that panel. It's like it's a panel with three faces and six eyes and two of the heads, They those eyes. It's like I don't know which eye to look at. <laughs> Did you check the script, Steve? Because maybe it was written no, into the script that they were supposed to be like that. Because it's kind of funny. Like, when they reprint this, if you don't understand something in the panels, you could refer to the script to see what was supposed to be there. So I'm just like, ah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, some of the eye placement in other panels is also a little... Oh, yeah, the script. It makes the, the whole thing... Uh, Andrew, the script, the whole thing, it's explained with what the scream and the... Di- uh, you just need to read the script, my friend. <laughs> it's also weird that there's thumbnails. Like, I didn't expect a writer to break things down like that, but I guess so they don't have to write as much. And Bagley just disregards some of them anyways when he comes up with something better. But yeah, He's like, I need to draw scientists with their eyes drifting. <laughs> exactly. I'm not going with your layout. <laughs> I have my own important... But anyway, so that pretty much... She smashes her carapace to end it all. And then we find on the ground, we don't know where, but on the ground are our fallen thunderbolts that were inside the dome. We don't know if they're in Colorado or if they're in some alternate dimension or where they're placed, but we just get a close-up of them. Yeah, they made it. All passed out on the ground. Yeah, they made it through. They would never go to another reality in the Thunderbolts book. That would that never happens ever. Oh, oh, and and Jolt is human and alive. What? She, she hasn't been both eye, of those. She hasn't both of those things in a long time, right? Because last time she came back alive, wasn't she stuck, Jolty? Well, aren't there two yes. Jolts here? Oh, you're talking well, about Jolt, Jolt, not okay. 
Well, the other thing I like is that uh, Moonstone's leg is cut off brutally. <laughs> is she like phased into the ground? Yeah. All right. I guess that's what we're going to say. Because well, if, if that's what like you got to do, not drawing her foot. leg. Yeah. <laughs> but, so, who uh, do we have here? We have like so, well, another we, Thunderbolts, our Redeemers. What happens is the Fixer is the first one to wake up. Dallas Reardon doesn't look bubblegummed anymore. So Fixer, Joel, Moonstone, uh, Reardon, non-bubblegum, and Fixer. And Fixer wakes up, up to a gun being cocked in his face. And who do we have now? Who do we have? Man. We have a, a classic fur collar line Zemo uh-huh. with a bit of a skirt, but not the full skirt, which is kind of a shame. I prefer the full skirt. Makes him look less cheesy. Our favorite um, World War II good guy slash bad guy slash whatever the the Iron Iron Access was that his name? We just recently Iron saw Cross. him Iron Cross Iron Cross sacrifice well, himself. Is he like a helmet ruler or something? Well, all I know is he has freakishly long arms. Oh, okay. Then um, uh, and no feet. A male. It, looks like it looks like there's two jolts here though. Well, there's the male version of Moonstone. <laughs> Yes. yes. Phantom Eagle including, or something? Including these strange feet. <laughs> and, and what's that guy's name? Is it uh, Solar? No. It's the one that... Who's the dude with the amulet? The long hair. something? Okay. I think that's uh, Adam Warlock. <laughs> oh, jeez. And we have like a Wolverine, Jolt, X-23. I'm not quite sure what this is. A Mohawk, Jolt, Energy. Hmm. I don't know. I'm not describing this well. And who was the chick who had, uh, who was, um, uh, you know, like crippled? Could this be a healthy version of her when techno? she wasn't using her powers? Techno? No, she was female, I thought. No, kind of, I, I almost think of her as like a female version of Night Thrasher, though. But we'll see. Does a female who has uh, cybernetic... Silhouette? Uh... Yeah, there you go. Hey, that's, that's some new Warriors knowledge for you. Yeah, so kind of a mysterious if this is another Thunderbolts or Redeemers. or Man, th- this book likes introducing just teams of new characters or old characters or obscure characters, doesn't it? It does. Well, the... and I, I was so impressed by this reveal here at the end of this issue that this was the last issue of Thunderbolts that I bought off the shelf. Yeah, Steve, why? <laughs> in in my um, long box, the next issue is issue number 100 from okay. this issue. <laughs> I need an explanation. Did you figure out why this was your last issue now? I don't know. I mean, I don't <laughs> I, I don't care who these what the deal is here with these I mean, I don't I, I don't care about uh I don't know who this girl is who seems like silhouette from New Warriors and this electric Wolverine chick person and I don't know. Don't I guess I felt like about... this was a good end of the story. Uh <laughs> Songbird finally got Angar off her from being around her throat. I guess so you're like Baron Zemo and all these guys that seem vaguely familiar. You're like, this isn't interesting. I have to read, um, I don't know, what were you reading? Everything else. Everything else? So, Ecstatics and... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Or that was X-Force at that point. No, it, it will, I think... uh, from here on, I'm I'm with Andrew, though. This is uh, wow. this will be all new. I think I know the reason. Um, it's because you were tur- you turned to the final page and saw the letter page, and even though you didn't know the right Andrew Shaw, you saw a letter from the wrong Andrew Shaw, <laughs> and you were like, "I'm done." 
<laughs> wow. I'm done until the... I meet the real Andrew Shaw from Australia. The other Andrew Shaw goes this far back? Imperious Rex. Wow. Uh, Andrew J. Shaw. Now, I don't know if that's... If the, if we're talking about yet a third Andrew Shaw or what, but there's an Andrew Shaw that does, of course, wonderful segments on this very show. Most recently, the... Uh, Marvel Unlimited segments with Kevin from Australia. But there's this other Andrew Shaw writing letters in the back of my Thunderbolts comic. And he and I think, Steve, you knew that someday in the future you'd be on a podcast with another Andrew Shaw and you just couldn't stand, stomach the indignity. Don't let the streams cross. <laughs> I, I will tell you that um, seeing the blurb for the next issue, uh, it's a brave new world in 30... Uh, you know, in 30 days. Um, like I said about, even when we were talking about Age of Apocalypse uh, last episode, that um, not getting back into comics as an adult and stuff, I wasn't that, I was still sort of catching up and working to keep up with what was going on in the regular Marvel U, and uh, I wasn't that excited about uh, setting up a whole other reality and exploring it. Um, just uh, not not usually my my cup of tea. So I hope you you didn't read the Jeff Parker Thunderbolts because you must have been really disappointed when they kept on dimension hopping. Well, you know because we <laughs> talked about it many times on this podcast <laughs> at the time that I very much enjoyed uh, enjoyed that until the team whittled down to a bunch of people that I really didn't like, and then uh, uh, I became concerned, and then everything fell apart. So, hmm. yeah, that didn't end well, did it? No. Well, the next issue we have is actually the first issue that I picked up hot off the presses. Whoa. Fresh when it was freshly minted. What What is this, this amazing issue? This is from 2011. Well, we're, we're jumping. jumping ahead. We're jumping way ahead, but it fits right in. It's the Marvel Vault series, which was where they blew out some scripts that were sitting around in the back and finish off the issues and this one is a thunderbolt justice like lightning marvel vault one shop from 2011 uh nomad is haunted by his past and chasing everyone else's with a absolutely breathtaking lee weeks dean white cover yeah that i really like yeah um which does no favors to the interior artists which would be fine but you know you set them up with that kind of cover who wants to do the interiors you know what i mean I love the, the way the bl- blacks are spotted and then the way that they did the folds and like his pants around his knee and everything bunched up and man, just everything just looked really nice. I thought this was, uh, the Marvel Vault stuff was pretty, pretty interesting. Like they had that old Doctor Strange story. Then they had that Defender story where no one could really remember what the story was supposed to be about anymore. So they created a new one. <laughs> they were always pretty, uh, pretty fascinating. Like, the weird Ditko yeah. Human Torch thing. Yeah, there was yeah. there was just like what everyone there was like something to intrigue you. And this one also came with like four pages of uh, Red Hulk preview in the back of it, yeah. randomly tucked in. It was a real fun. At the time, I kind of flipped through it, and it was complete mystery to me. <laughs> like I think just reading it at random, it's a lot of references that don't make any sense. But Nisienza, the writer, has a nice forward in the beginning where he talks about, you know, they called him up out of nowhere and said, hey, we're jamming this out. Here's 25 bucks or whatever they pay him. And well, he mentions fondly how much he liked Nomad. 
and it's a nomad story. Yeah, he had to go back and re-script it. The art had been done. The script had been done uh, back in 2001, and there was no, uh, you know, uh, there was no script. So, yeah, he has to go uh, back and revisit the art and put a new script in, and uh, so that's kind of cool. Yeah, he's kind of sad that Nomad was uh, <laughs> killed off in uh, Rue Baker's calf, but at least it was a great story, right? It needed to happen because they were going to bring Bucky back. Yeah. And uh, the art duties are Derek Coin and Vero Gandhi on colors. Like I said, no knock to them, but that Lee Weeks Dean White cover is pretty tough to <laughs> pretty tough to follow up with regular interiors. I gotta say. So this is basically um, just Nomad walking around America punching people in the face. Think or at least the, the, what the ongoing series was supposed to be if one launched out of this. Right. And and acknowledging, too, uh, you know, his history as Scourge and uh, kind of following up on that because we never really got one in the series. And he had just kind of disappeared at the end. He took it, left the Scourge armor but took the image and Deucer and disappeared at the end of that when they were wrapping up with Gyrick and all that business. Back, uh, listen to previous episodes of Thunderbolts coverage to find out. And as you say, this is him on the road trying to suss out what happens. So he takes the um, image of different Thunderbolts to kind of see what their backstory is. And the first one is Melissa. Yeah, that was a little weird because at first I'm like, why is he changing into Melissa? And he likes his Mountain Dew as well. Mm. Well, to be fair, it's MD, so it could be, you know. (laughs) Oh, okay. Okay. Do you, what other what other pops or do you call them sodas? Do you have with MD? Could be uh, my fine deliciousness. Okay. But uh, Melissa Gold's a rural upbringing and goes to her trailer, and that's when we get a bunch of dialogue about how her father's passed away, but her mother's back, and hooked up with some unpleasant individual. So Nomad looks them up and, you know, doesn't get much satisfaction. Hmm. Presumably he, you know, doles out a little street justice, but they skip. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe he just turns around and walks out. I thought it was interesting we left it kind of vague. Yeah. Like, does he does he defend the battered wife or does he walk out? I think he probably walks out because he mentioned something about wasting his time. Yeah, the second one's with uh, him impersonating Carla. And, uh, wow, uh, Carla didn't make any friends. <laughs> because uh, this person that uh, Nomad as Carla dials up here is uh, actually a flashback character, I assume, from the annual. And, uh, yeah, they kind of uh, psycho-evaluate Moonstone and everything. So it's kind of interesting. I always and, love the uh, shot, yeah. too, of uh, Carla on the phone, actual Carla on the phone and... Um, Using her psychiatrist training for like devious stuff, and she's like, they have the musical notes. She's like, "Oh yeah, sorry, I didn't catch them." Like she's impersonating someone, and you know, trying to pe- keep people in therapy and everything, so she can make more money and all that. And I think that was a direct lift from that story we talked about. Because I remember they were always having her call the husband and the wife and get everything going <laughs> for insecurity. And the takeaway from that is like her own. Well, boasting is because she's secretly insecure 
And she's so insecure that this person would never work with her again, even though she just couldn't trust her. And then, of course, we have to go right to Burton Canyon, Colorado, to follow up on the Thunderbolts and one Abe Jenkins. Mock insert number here. Hmm. Yeah. And it looks like uh, he redeemed himself pretty well. Because a police officer is standing up for him and saying he was awesome and all that type of stuff. Which, if you look at the Thunderbolts, the members where they ended up in modern day, yeah, that, that totally makes sense. Abe, Abe stuck with it. And it does give us a bit of a timestamp because it does reference the events in issue 59 that we just covered because it talks about Angar and Melissa squaring off. Yeah. So that's why this issue comes at this point. I mean, it could come any time after, but it would at least have to be after 59 at a minimum. Correct. And then he visits the tombstones of the Jostin family. Oof. And the, it's yeah, a lot we of smoke. We saw how the smuggler, ugh, that is the worst name I still maintain. Uh, Eric Jostin's younger brother doesn't do well, and then he goes to the high school of Eric Jostin to talk to the, is that the coach or the janitor? I can't figure it out. He's a ask whistle. about him. I'm assuming oh, so it's got to be a coach. Yeah. Who has one of those pithy phrases that no one in real life ever says. <laughs> and asked if Eric was a hero or a villain, you know. Too weak to be one and too strong to be neither. I'm like, okay, that line was too heavy. But I think this is trying to go for a noir feeling. It just felt, I, I think the art team was a real mismatch for the feeling. Ditto. Like the art is really positive and brightly lit and kind of friendly. And it seems like he's going for a real, you know, cigarette smoke curling around the corners. And one panel has a bottle of whiskey and that type of thing. Hmm. Yeah. Then the next one, you see um, Henry Peter Geirich here uh, having a great time in his new office. And he's like, man, this isn't going so well. <laughs> and uh, and I, Nomad's like the his assistant there. I don't remember this Alicia Kern. Was she some bigger figure that I, my poor memory, it makes it seem like, like she gets a cover. She's one of the women on the cover. She's in here, and I'm like, was she that big a character? I don't remember her. I thought she was something like a Gail Rogers or whatever, just another one of those characters that was in the story. And so this is him having a petty little dig by um, having the assistant leave for a better job. He knocked her out with sleeping pills and tells Aang, tells gets to tell off Guy Rich that she's leaving and he's a waste of space. A little bit of revenge. Because Guy Rich was the one that was setting up all those nanos. Yeah, what it turns out is it's revealed that, um, you see, Nomad was considered dead uh, previous to when he showed up in this series as Scourge. And it gets revealed here that he was placed in suspended animation by Guy Rich and revived and, you know, for temporary missions being brainwashed to do what they wanted uh, to do their bidding as this as scourge which <laughs> i mean is that exactly what they ended up doing with the original bucky and the winter soldier or what how about so, that <laughs> no wonder why they had to kill off uh this version and then jack monroe the second bucky that that this was going to be they were going to use this exact scenario for the original bucky when because uh, after this issue the very next time we see him is getting killed off um, 
in, in Brubaker's cap. So it's wild. And then it ends up with this Yenza has this fetish for the lesser known members of the Serpent Society because <laughs> we saw Cottonmouth and now we get Rock Python. <laughs> yeah, I'm not super familiar with Rock Python. He rocks a python. But um, yeah, he has a confrontation with him and Rock Python's working a regular job. And he's like, look, you know, you got to decide are you going to go straight or are you going to keep being a bad guy? The choice is yours. Yeah. And it ends with him. An adamantium uh, federal storage facility or like right beside uh, First National Bank. <laughs> yeah, for such a rare, but it's the resin used to make adamantium, which is weird. I don't I guess they have to make it out of something, but I thought it was like a, element i didn't realize it was a manufactured thing you think that you wouldn't uh, advertise like this that it's uh i don't know I, I, maybe i thought it would be like hidden like on the outskirts of town like not in the middle of the city or something like that well to be fair the federal depository csa storage doesn't you'd have to know you know like you and me i wouldn't know that i wouldn't know that's that but i like that uh and it ends with him in a trench coat that looks almost like a cape hitchhiking away. and He's going to handle this one villain at a time. Well, it's, br- it's really bringing the character first full circle, having the big trench coat on uh, and the sunglasses. And you can see he's starting to grow, uh, you know, some facial hair here. There, it's a, this is Fabian Nicienza addressing the Jack Monroe nomad character again. He wrote that series back in the early 90s, uh, I want to. I'll just shoot out at around ninety two, ninety three. I want to say, um, uh, uh, artist named Hawthorne, and um, uh, Patrick Olaf drew some issues too. I, I want. I want to say it ran about twenty five issues, thirty issues, or something like that. And there was yeah. a Nomad series, and it was him wandering, um, you know, Middle America with uh, long hair and a trench coat and facial hair and sunglasses. So here, Nicienza is. Um, leaving the character where he thought that it, he was best served and, and bringing him back to that. Uh, unfortunately, he'd just go on to get shot in the head by crossbones and the Red Skull. Or, no, it was really the Winter Soldier. <laughs> well, he didn't like those ice cream dealers, if I remember. Right. I wonder if Brubaker could have just run the same story with Nomad. It wouldn't have had quite the same resonance, but I don't know. It seems like the maybe you're right, Steve. There's just too much of the same groundwork laid, but doesn't that make it even better in a way? I don't know. Instead, he went and he mined further the uh, '50s cap <laughs> with a few stories. You know what I mean? He got rid of the '50s Bucky, replaced him with the original Bucky uh, in the Marvel scope of things, and then you know, f- for whatever he could have played around with of dealing with the old 50s Bucky, he instead played around with the 50s cap, who I guess he found more appealing as far as him being uh, used as a tool and what he stood for and everything. Uh, I think we ended up with good stories all around. So. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm just, like you say, it ended up being them shelving one character for another one, but there's another segment we have on the show, and that is uh, Kevin recorded his thoughts contemporaneously back in the early aughts. So uh, does modern day Kevin have any insights back in the day, Kevin, regarding 58 and 59? I thought this was pretty entertaining for for modern day, uh, modern day Kevin. But 
I guess it's 2002, was it, uh, Kevin? So for 58, he says, I would rather have charcoal back than jolt. Ouch. <laughs> that is mean. <laughs> like, I know they started building Charcoal's character up, but I'm like, wow. Like, I, I don't I don't get it. Like, that, that is, I don't, I don't find Jolt's that bad anymore. <laughs> That's funny. No women. No women allowed. <laughs> Apparently. Unless it's Songbird or Moonstone. Uh, he also talks about uh, how the title gets crazy incestuous with all the, like, obscure characters or family members. Like, you always know one of them's going to come back or something's going to happen. But then he keeps on saying, oh, Cosmos, you know, that's still coming back because they, they you know, they use everything over again. And, uh, yeah, 58 ends and it fades to white. And then he's like, oh, just like issue 12. You know, it's another one of those fade to white things. And then you're like, well, what's going to happen now? And apparently Steve's like, I'm not interested. That's not interesting anymore. So it didn't work on him. <laughs> well, did 2002 Kevin say that? <laughs> did he predict that <laughs> 15 years in the future? He would be concerned about. No, I, I I mix them. You know, I get confused sometimes. I have identity issues. Anyways, fi- issue I do 15. like when when you refer to Ke- 2001 Kevin as a separate person. <laughs> <laughs> 50, issue 59. Uh, he's all like Bagley, and he's happily happy about the the uncovered artwork because there's not all the dialogue and. All the words messing everything up. Even though Bagley's usually pretty good about leaving room for the massive yeah. words and everything. Uh, I thought it was a good plot that, that uses the silence. Oh, and he talks about the extras in the script uh, that they are fascinating. I don't know if all of these are an issue or if he's like pulling from uh, Marvel.com, but he says uh, that Anger's message was supposed to be like longer in the clouds. But you know, I guess if you have a long paragraph in the clouds, that's not probably better to just get close you know to the point like the riddler leaving a whole riddle in the- yeah <laughs> and you're like wow that's that's rather elaborate what if something happens halfway through <laughs> <laughs> and apparently the script made a mention of the bio modem in zemo's lab as well see that's i'm an- telling you you gotta read the script yeah there's like there's a lot of secrets and stuff in there like geez they weren't blacking things out although in if if there was a reference to zorn and morrison's x-men i'm sure they blanked that out because they were pretty careful with that stuff. Well, why they showed the biomodem equipment, even though it was previously established in Spider-Man Team-Up number 7, it's a setup for further explaining the Zemo-John Watkins switch, as clearly outlined in the script. And then he's sort of like guessing at all the Thunderbolts, or whoever they are on the last page of 59, where he's like a male Moonstone, a Jolt, a tech person, an Atlas Mac 3 combination and Iron Cross. Wow, that's a stretch. But I guess he <laughs> needs to match up all the people. And he's like, yeah, I hope this is like after issue 12, not like after issue 50. And, oh, he, he hopes there's more mystery too and he can't wait for all the subplots and everything. But, you know, I think he's going to be a little disappointed on that front since the book is going into basically a new Marvel era. Not like heavy new Marvel, but there's going to be some change-ups. That's all they'll say. I don't want to, you know. Can't spoil it, man. We yeah. haven't got there yet. Exactly. And who knows how far we're going, so. But you had guessed, you mentioned in our last episode that you had guessed that the Scream was Angar the Screamer. Oh, yeah. That, he was one of the top suspects, and I'm sure the board, board was all like, yeah, that's who it is. And in that issue where we couldn't read, 
well, we could read. We just couldn't. We could figure <laughs> out that Scourge was there in one of the flashbacks, and then the texts are all there, and then they're like carting around, wielding around Anger of the Screamer, a scream, and all that. Hmm. The script actually doesn't um, describe the thank you message at all. Instead, uh, has Scream mimic a look to Melissa as was done in issue number 51. It's supposed to mirror that. And Scream is supposed to take off at the end himself. Not, And you don't know if he's alive or sentient or whose mind is inside it. Weird. So, yeah. Wild. I don't know. The Scream mystery was, was pretty decent. You could probably figure it out. And uh, yeah, it, it, it sort of seemed like we were never going to get that revealed after what <laughs> happened in that other issue. But like, all these characters were killed, and then two of them are back, like, almost immediately. And then they sort of make a reference to Charcoal, too. Is Charcoal back yet? No. <laughs> he hasn't reassembled himself. And he won't, I guess. Hmm. All right. We wrapped up another few issues of Thunderbolts here. Yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I assume you boys are along to continue for at least another pumping more into more Thunderbolts. I've waited 15 years. I might as well find out what happens next issue. <laughs> oh, I, I hope it's good because I remember like reading, what was it, the eighth day? And I was really pumped for that. And then once I finally got to the last issue, I'm like, like the lead up was way better than the actual yeah. confrontation. <laughs> that was awful. <laughs> so I, I hope uh, I hope you have a better time than, than my experience, Steve. At least you guys will be there with me either way. Yeah. Now, I want to see us... You know, the fight bolts. We're getting close to the fight club bolts, so should be exciting. Until then, uh, listeners, we hope you, this is Marvel Noise's most wanted segment. Keep making mine Thunderbolts. Later. Anniversary issue hunters, Steve Rager here from the comic book bunker. Not a hoax, not imaginary story. This is the one you've been waiting for, true believer. It's our 250th episode, so you know what to expect. We're presenting every Marvel issue 250 ever. Now, my howling commandos this time around are Andrew the LA Rabbit, Kevin Whirlwind X, and Jerry McDade. That's right, I use my real name. <laughs> I was going to say of the late Great Expectations podcast. <laughs> that too. Also, that's not my real name. I and, lied. And we almost had Alan, but, oh, man, dinner was late. Sometimes service in Manhattan just isn't what you need it to be. Uh, our cool He's trapped in battle world, Steve. We can still plug the power principle, though, now that it's on Comixology. Go look for the power principle. I think there's a couple issues out already on Comixology to be had. To be hads with a Z. If you're following his uh, Twitter, you know, he's working on fresh, fresh new issues, too. Woohoo! All right, so 
How we've done this for episode 100, 150, and 200 is we go chronologically through the anniversary issues that match the anniversary episode. So the first, you know, our list is getting smaller and smaller every time here, guys, even though, uh, you know, some of these issues try to do the renumbering thing. When we get to 600, we're going to be all set. Yeah. What about 700? <laughs> I miss, uh, so no no Western, no Millie the Model. No. Good stuff. They've fallen by the wayside, my friend. The wheat has been cut from the chafe. You're the only guy still alive that remembers those anyway. <laughs> but hey, some of those are residing in the bunker as we speak. <laughs> but does he remember them? <laughs> I don't have to tonight. Mm-hmm. The first issue we have is from June of 1976. It's Thor, which benefits from its numbering previously as Journey into Mystery. And it reached issue 250 and sold for, get this, still only 25 cents. Still. (laughs) I love it. Written by Len Wein, drawn by John Buscema, and inked heavily by Tony DeZuniga. And it was entitled, If Asgard Shall Perish. Or should perish. This was like the finale to a multi-part epic. I should have mentioned too, it's under a Jack Kirby, Joe Sinnott cover. When Kirby came back to Marvel in the 70s, he did a bunch of covers. He didn't draw a lot of his old characters returning to them, but he did covers for like the FF and for Thor, uh, etc. And uh, this is one of them. Joe Sinnott, or Sinnott makes uh, Kirby look as good as ever. Uh, and it's a finale to this multi-part epic that Len Wein had going, where things were going all funky in Asgard. Odin was, he was going crazy. He was behaving all erratically and like imprisoning people left and right, being way more bad-tempered than normal. But he's not his, basically, like, I don't know if you would notice too much of a difference. <laughs> but they didn't notice at first. <laughs> but it got totally out of hand. That's because it wasn't Odin at all. Uh, now we, in this issue, have discovered, along with Thor, that it's Mangog, that kooky Kirby-designed thing in disguise, working with the jailed uh, villain Igron. Yeah, Igron yeah. changed Mangog's like appearance, and they took Odin's place when they observed Odin teleporting back to Asgard and then like disappearing midstream. And they're like, hey... Uh, no one knows Odin's gone. Let's uh, set up the imposter thing. Although it made me wonder why he didn't transform himself into Odin. It seemed right. like uh, um, an extra complication to his plan. Mangog's pretty powerful, though, so maybe it was he wanted some muscle. And, and he himself was still jailed, but yeah, I guess the way he kind of walked out of the cell uh, as Odin, I guess it could have been Igron. Uh, but and Thor, of course, he, he fights back, right? But all of the other Asgardians, of course, see him fighting Odin. So it, it's crazy. Um, Thor gets just short of crucified. It's got it's like mechanical Kirby tech harness instead, but it's still like holding up his limp form. Pretty intense. I like how the hammer is also held separate and apart from him <laughs> as well. They give a give a whole vibe to it, and also I. I might be the only one, but some of the crowd scenes did flash me a little bit of the old uh, Conan feel with sure. Big John. <laughs> Balder, Sif, the Warriors 3, they all rally. They all get totally whooped. Um, 
<laughs> like whammied with all this magic stuff. Sif gets old. Volstag turns into a literal pig. <laughs> yeah, I guess these weren't um, weren't as popular as the. I, I tweeted a picture of this out earlier in the week. Uh, yeah, I guess the animal Asgardians weren't as popular as uh, Thorfrog will later become. <laughs> True. Well, when they get the uh, the big group together to storm the castle, it uh, looks almost like Big Bardas there in the background. I don't know if you saw the brunette with the headgear behind <laughs> Sif. I was like, whoa, it's a nice little fake Easter egg. Thor does a whole Samson thing, totally brings down the walls he's bound to, and just beats Mangog down after he reveals his visage to the entire public. And uh, yet Mangog had blasted Igron uh, to dust prior to that. Uh, It's all good, but and it leads right into a uh, multi-issue subsequent arc where they have to search for the missing Odin. And this issue and the whole imposter story arc were all reprinted in 2010 in the hardcover If Asgard Should Fall. And the subsequent quest for Odin was also given a hardcover that same year. Must have been the year of a Thor movie. Um, and the the quest for Odin hardcover has Walt Simonson's first uh, times penciling Thor, even though it still is under the heavy uh, Dezunaga inks, but it's still Walt Simonson. So all was he, all, oh, oh, was he scripting those, Steve? Do you no, know? No, no, he was. But that's why he was fond of the character and wanted to return to it uh, uh, several years later. A, a worthy issue two fifty, though, don't you think? It felt like a a big deal. I wasn't so hot on this issue. I don't know. I, I guess I enjoy Man God Monster more than him pretending to be Odin. Like Odin's. <laughs> I want to see some monsters, not just some old guy walking around. I guess. Yeah, I have the benefit of reading, having read the whole story leading up to it, so this is the cap of a almost a year of story. For me, it was mostly Big John's art that was fun to, like I said, give you the Conan vibe to it and everything. All right, next up, four years later, in June of 1980, The Incredible Hulk, which was previously Tales to Astonish, hit issue number 250. Written by Bill Mantlo, with art by Sal Buscema. The monster, the exile, the quest, the power! And it's all under an Al Milgram cover, and Hulk has no butt. You notice that? (laughs) Like an awesome back of his calf and, and, and foot? Like, that's a hard position to draw a foot, and Milgram does it great, but right next to it, there's like no pelvis or butt at all. Well, you take a shot from the Silver Surfer to the chest and see if you don't clench. Yeah, the Surfer does. The Surfer looks pretty cool. <laughs> what I really liked about this issue is there are chapters, and the chapters are the monster, the exile, the quest, the power. <laughs> I love it. An epic in acts. It looks like the Silver Surfer is going to attack Canada or something in the <laughs> in the, one of these chapters with all the seal beatings and everything. <laughs> well. That's the thing. The surfer at this time, he's still trapped, you know, by Galactus's uh, that confounded barrier uh, that's keeping him on Earth. So he's like at the North Pole. When they first show him, it looks like he's being worshipped by penguins. (laughs) (laughs) They're all around him and he's standing there all like, you know, with good posture. (laughs) 
And it's funny that they make a little editor's note that the, they know that the penguins aren't supposed to be at the North Pole, but oh well. Oh, and they threw Sal under the bus. They did. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> well, just, they also have a polar bear wall. It's like a whole nature <laughs> preserve up there. Yeah, well, the, he, he's like, the surfer's like a tuning fork on that ice. <laughs> well, the surfer breaks up like a baby seal slaughtering operation, like you said. <laughs> And uh, he just totally gets fed up at Earth, Earthlings and Earth, shoots up to the barrier, smashes into it a few times. Dang barrier, you know? Um, but he notices that gamma radiation gets through the barrier, and that makes him think of having tussled with the Hulk. And so he thinks that he could make himself stronger by taking on the Hulk's unique gamma irradiation and then if he's as long as he kept getting mad hitting into that barrier he'd keep getting stronger because the man of the hulk it would affect him exactly the same right guys (laughs) what could go wrong with this plan (laughs) hey the the arabian knight also makes a cameo appearance in this issue (laughs) of course he does i love that and he goes searching for the hulk and goes all the way around the world and there's a great montage that shows all those mantlo characters that would eventually be used in uh, Contest of Champions a few years later. Sabra, the Collective yeah. Man. Uh, who else? Uh, the, like you said, the Arabian Knight. No Shamrock, though. Uh, oh, that's too bad. Captain Britain. The old Captain Britain with the hair. Crimson Dynamo. Anyway, you can tell he's searching all over the world for this Hulk. And when he finds him, of course, they fight and all that. But uh, in Chapter 4, they pull off the switch. And, of course, the Silver Surfer goes on a rampage like the Hulk would. And uh, this is a big give and take, right? Banner manages to take the the power back. And then uh, they fight again as the Hulk and Surfer, but this time up at space right at the side of the barrier. And the Surfer takes the Gamma back from Banner, leaving Banner to, like, fall into orbit, into re-entry or whatever. And uh, he... He passes through. The plan really works well. Uh, he's free of the barrier. And Bruce Banner is dead. Yeah, it was. Uh, I really wanted to see a green Silver Surfer. It was all hulked out. His, his eyes got a little green, you know. But that was about it. The power cosmic took on a little green tone. But uh, he's it was just motion silver. sickness. He's okay. <laughs> a little jaundiced. So that was weird. There's like. They mentioned the fighting, but no mention of the defenders. Like, yeah, you know, they had like a whole connection for you know they were teammates. On and there's like nothing. Just hey, this guy I fought one time. You know, Surfer really wasn't a defender as much as some of those images would leave you to believe. Though you know, he he was just a passing. He wasn't really like a real teammate for long. Um, Or any of those people real teammates? They were the defenders. Good point. Hellcat and. Nighthawk, they were. Valkyrie. The, the uh, gargoyle. <laughs> uh, but anyway, the Hulk, uh, surf, the surfer, he can't, he can't, Galactus left him with a conscience, right? Which we know that he, later he didn't, but whatever. Um, <laughs> but he can't let Banner fall to his death, and so he realizes that he's got to go back for him and loses his one chance to have done it this way. Wah, wah. Oh. And in the meantime, he's also destroyed Bruce Banner's one chance at happiness. <laughs> so that was nice. 
Bruce had finally worked it out. He was happy. He wasn't getting angry. Found this nice girl with a little daughter, and they're hanging out in the mountains. But no, Silver Surfer. Came well, to find I also him. love, like, I could cure, cure you, but eh, it doesn't work out that well. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other thing is I never noticed he could feel the gamma rays and a turbulence in the center of his soul. I, I didn't know that's how they worked. Oh, yeah. Right on the soul. Direct action on the soul. A good 250 issue, I thought. It felt more like an annual. Um, Certainly a funny Silver Surfer story when you look back on things. (laughs) (laughs) Extra pages, too. Like, sometimes you don't get it. Like, like there was the old ones where they didn't care, and then you get to the modern era where they're like, we're not doing that anymore. You know what we need Rick Hansen for, though, is I was totally intrigued by the next issue hook. Oh, yeah. Issue 251, whatever happened to the 3D man? <laughs> They're still asking that question. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. I think that might have been an Agents of Atlas story. <laughs> well, two months later, in August of 1980, a four-year run of either John Byrne or Roger Stern writing issue 250s for Marvel would begin with it, with Captain America 250 again having the previous numbering from Tales of Suspense under its belt and this was 50 cents written by Stern and Byrne drawn by Byrne and Joe Rubenstein this is the cap for president issue oh this is where it's at this is like legendary run territory yeah, or, or one, why I, he wouldn't I, run this might be the first one I remember like I didn't, re- I may, I may have read that Thor and Hulk. I don't remember, but this one, I, I mean, I didn't remember in any great detail that the reread helped, but I do remember this one. It was an election year, of course, 1980. So um, it, it's funny in the letters page there is a uh, editor's box where uh, Stern explains that previous to them coming on the book, when Roger McKenzie and Don Perlin were drawing Cap. They had an idea to have Cap run for president and win. And that was going to be like the next, you know, the new status quo for Cap. And he was going to deal with everything like, you know, from Washington and on a national level and stuff. Or an international level, if, if you would. Uh, and the Stern, who was the editor at the time, nixed it. But, you know, come around for the anniversary issue and it's getting close to convention time and... They they draw back on uh, uh, Raj and Don's unusable story arc here and, and have, uh, like, what happens is Cap interrupts a, uh, like, a violence that happens at a political, like, a fundraising dinner type thing. And they talk him into, well, they kind of suggest him running for president and he doesn't totally say no. And they use the media and uh, to kind of pressure him into uh, ha- jumping the gun and deciding for him. But the whole thing is done cute. Like all the Avengers reactions to him and everyone like talking to him and giving him advice, that stuff. That's where, that's what really makes the issue. I'm thinking of this cap for president thing, like in Marvel Knights or something, but they backed off of it. The credits are really cool. It's um, a newspaper page. So like special color insert. And uh, it's just, I thought that was a really clever way to have, have all the people, it's a reveal of Cap for President, the trick they do. 
I like that. No, no, Steve I, and Kevin, I think it would be ultimately foolish to think oh. anyone would buy a comic with Cap as president. <laughs> I, I heard that was hilarious, though. Well, yeah, I was going to recommend that anybody who wondered how that would have turned out check out that Ultimates series with President Captain America, and you can see how terrible of an idea it is. <laughs> Besides the reactions from the Avengers, they have, uh, like, Nick Fury having a reaction in Daredevil. You get to see how people would react to it. Spidey, Doctor Strange. It's cool. You get to see Byrne drawing them, too. What I really like is J. Jonah Jameson uh, going back and forth with Robbie talking about it. And it foreshadows him running for mayor. Because, mm. <laughs> because they, he, uh, Robbie says to him, well, if Cap could be president, anything could happen. Even Spider-Man could be mayor. And I could just see the wheels <laughs> turning in JJJ's head like, oh, I'm going to be mayor someday in New York before that Spider-Man ever is. Boy, Byrne does a really good JJJ, too, by the sure way. does. Brant, get in here. <laughs> <laughs> a, a good issue 250, memorable. Uh, the whole issue ends with Cap's big speech on why he you know, wouldn't run. Um, How about the letters page, too, where they ask, what are the problems facing America in the <gasps> 80s? Yeah. They haven't changed. <laughs> 30 years, they haven't changed. Since the time of Socrates. The Iranian situation, right at the top of the list. Yeah, yeah. Coming off of Carter and the rise of the Ayatollah and all that. I wish they'd really given the poll on the old villains. <laughs> That's the one oh, I wanted yeah. to see. I mean, we knew the Red Skull would come in on top, but I want to see people pitching all a Cap's classic villains. Red Skull hadn't been around for a while, and he wouldn't show up until later, until uh, Dematis and Zek. Yeah, I thought there was supposed to be like a, a Stern, Burn uh, Red Skull story. Like, I think there's some penciled pages out there for that issue that never happened. It's funny, too, that they didn't do a uh, retrospective look back at his career or re-origin telling because the real anniversary of Cap's creation was coming up. So they would be doing it in that issue. I think it was like four issues later, 254, right? Also made it fun because there wasn't really... It was like just exploring ideas. Aside from a quick action sequence for a few pages, it's just this kind of funny idea and how the world reacts to it. Yeah, absolutely. It's like why Stern said no in the first place is why Cap says... Like, why wouldn't Cap run? You know, then, then, then there's your story. Three years later, in November of 1983, John Byrne drew us and wrote us Fantastic Four, issue number 250, giant-sized for a buck. It's yeah. X-Factor. What? Yeah, X-Factor, yeah. The X-Factor. You have my attention. <laughs> this was so cool, you guys. This issue was so good. But what yeah. the Spider-Man, it looks like it's like classic Spider-Man, not like... I know, I love Byrne Spider-Man. Oh. First, you got to know that in issue 240 is really the second part of a two-parter. Gladiator comes in from the Shi'ar and mops the floor with the FF. It's like X-Men cosmic meets classic, you know, Marvel Universe cosmic. I I loved it. Um, Then you get the whole tease of Byrne bringing in the X-Men and doing the X-Men again. And Cap again. And Spidey again, who he did in Marvel Team-Up. I'm like, where's Iron Fist? (laughs) (laughs) I'm really surprised he didn't show up in the issue, but that probably would have been a giveaway because nobody cared about him at this point. <laughs> the opening Something's se- going on. 
the opening right. sequence, I I almost want to call Alan and interrupt his dinner right now because it's one of Alan's favorite sequences. Is Spider Man webbing himself around the city and he discovers all this like blue taffy all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> so good, and it's the way that Gladiator left Mister Fantastic when he stretched him to his limits and tossed him all around the city. So cool. And the AF-15 cover tribute when he rescues yes, um, uh, Mr. Fantastic. It's right, the pose of Spider-Man's right off the cover. Yeah, with the underarm webs and everything. I love Burn Spidey. Tons of great perspective in these cityscapes, too. Yeah. And uh, I nostalgic for the days when you didn't have a lot of background often. <laughs> mm. This issue has one of my favorite Sue pages, too. Five panels say it all. Uh, it's just one where she's laying out uh, on the top of uh, the top panel when she's waking up. Franklin's waking her up. Uh, the, it's like on the first panel, she's like a bombshell. Then on the next panel, she's like hunched over with her hand on her head. She's like exhausted, fatigued. Then on the next panel, she's being like comforted by Reed. They're hugging. The next panel, she's being thoughtful. She's putting two and two together, and they're thinking about like how to act. And then the next, they're all like running into action. I, it, Love it. You just need one of her shopping. Or <laughs> <laughs> having a new hairdo. <laughs> Maybe one of her yelling at Reed for something stupid he's done. <laughs> so this issue, the X-Men are fighting Gladiator, as we would have originally expected, but um, then Captain America and Spider-Man on, on the scene, and they're fighting them too. What the what? Oh, ABX. Crazy. <laughs> The angel chucks a sharp piece of this, like, wreckage, this piece of shrapnel at the torch, and the torch ducks rather than incinerating it, and it skewers Cyclops behind him, and then it's revealed. Stinking Skrulls. Uh, always with the Skrulls. <laughs> a great way for Byrne to ha- draw the X-Men, but yet not be using the X-Men. Very clever, especially knowing all of the behind-the-scenes... Um, egos and everything you know i still like... wish it was really the x-men <laughs> <laughs> the ff rally they take down both gladiator and the remaining x scrolls with cap's help and uh great issue uh, it, it even ends with a marvel masterwork family pinup yeah i didn't know that about gladiator though that if you shake his confidence his powers are based on his confidence in them or something. Yeah, that's his deal. Well, yeah, I don't think that had been spelled out at that point yet, right? No, I don't remember it as of this point. Well, I thought the deal was that he was Superman, right? With the the eyes and everything and being solar-powered and everything. So, you know, if you remember back to that old um, Superman and the Hulk meet in one of the uh, Amazing Spider-Man, Superman crossover ones the second one the one with the uh, you know with dr doom and um and lex teaming up i think uh when the hulk and superman fight the hulk is able to whap superman around a little bit until superman's standing up and like braces himself and to for the hulk coming and then he's like he even says something to the effect of like you know, when I have my mind to it and I plant my feet on the ground, like nothing on earth is going to make me move, and and neither can the Hulk move him. 
So, so he's got I, the I blob some of that action going on. Like if he knows it's coming and is bracing himself, but if he's sort of off balance and not expecting it to get whacked by something invisible really hard in the in, right in the peanut, that not that, <laughs> that might knock you out. Well, first it. question: What's a Superman? <laughs> I don't know what that is. Second question: um, Isn't it? The, Reed kind of spells out that with the gladiator, it's more like a psionic thing, right? Like yeah, he's more like super. He's more like the clone Superboy than he is Superman. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. That I don't know what Jerry. that is either. <laughs> Even I don't know what you're that just is. making things up. Why don't you use real things <laughs> instead of these make believe things? Wait, if he was so super, why do he wear glasses? Yeah. <laughs> the other thing I like is on the last page, like it's all the devastation with the thing saying who's going to pay for it. And there's like these awesome like two hot pink cars, a purple car, a red like just quite a collection of garish automobiles. Like I wish I saw more of that. I see a lot of like white and black and red and blue. I don't see a lot of the hot pink and the Now funky Andrew, I colors. think I've shared my theory with you about that hot pink color. They put that on like half the X Men covers uh during the burn era. And I think they just decided that color sells comics, even if it's at the end of the story. <laughs> we all know kids flip to the end on the spinner rack and decide on the last they're, page. They're looking for that Toys R Us ad. You could win a shopping spree. It's in here somewhere. I just imagine a young Alan practicing Reed Richards handwriting. They're always just looking for that girl's, uh, you know, gateway into comics. <laughs> More pink. But that's a great issue. I mean, that's a two fifty for you. That's a two fifty. I think that might be my favorite of the bunch. Me too. I mean, I bought it off the shelf and I poured over it. My buddy Justin and I. Boy, oh boy, we were very much into that run, and that was really the height of it. Three months later, in January of nineteen eighty four, Amazing Spider Man hit issue number two fifty. For 60 cents, you got Roger Stern continuing his stranglehold on uh, the Marvel 250s with uh, art by John Romita Jr. and Klaus Jansen. And this it's is great. entitled Steal it. Confessions. Yes, it's great. Steal it in the corner box. <laughs> I had a subscription to the comics at this point, so I was getting them delivered. I remember this one for sure, for sure. Like this, those other ones I have, this one, I might have been able to get maybe a a uh, quarter of the beats, and I haven't read it since it hit the stands, probably. Oh, this was like um, a Grail issue that I always wanted, like reprinted or in like an omnibus. And this is good. Years. This is good, JR, JR. Yeah. I mean, it's strong. The Hobgoblin is not the two bit Hobgobby that we've become used to. He had made his first appearance already, but not too long before this. He had become both a mystery and really a major threat to Peter. Issue 250 was the first of the two-part final showdown where Spidey was like finally taking the offensive and he's going to go out and looking for answers and leads um, to try to find this guy who's been using all of Osborne's tech and Osborne's knowledge from his journals and his hideouts and stuff and really causing a real problem in, in spite. It's like the Goblin was back, but it wasn't the Goblin. It was pretty cool. Very. This was a great long-running, mm, and it kind yeah. of also tied Spidey back in with, like, Kingpin and the Rose and all those characters. This was And 
the the tie-ins to Spidey's past was particularly good because Jameson's secret involves the creation of the scorpion and he because he's using the goblin's notes it was just a really like as a young kid reading this was great because it tied into that old stuff and I like that scene with so Spidey strong. and JJJ that that made it feel anniversary issueish like they were really being honest with each other there in private yeah, if I was if I was diving for back issues like these are the issues I was diving for all this era from like I guess maybe 230 240 all the way up to like 300 and he pulls out his old spider tracer <laughs> Also... And most importantly, the, the spider signal thing on his belt. Yeah. Completely forgotten about, right? He never uses that thing. And that scene's really important, too. It's really cool because he's shaking down Roderick Kingsley, who we know was Stern's intended secret identity of mm. the Hobgoblin. That was Stern's guy right there, well before the whole Ned Leeds debacle that would follow after Stern left the book. <laughs> so when he shakes down Kingsley and he's like, this guy's too scared to tell me anything and runs off, he had him. That's pretty yeah. cool. You're, you're forgetting the whole Flash Thompson was the Hobgoblin? <laughs> there was a... Uh, he finally finds um, the Hobgoblin in one of Osborne's lairs and they have a big battle and everything and the Osborne journals get lost so now the Hos- Hobgoblin's going to be on his own from this point forward and the whole issue ends with a big explosion and that leads right into the next issue's cover where it's Spidey's fist coming out of the, the water with Hobgoblin's, uh, you know, mask and this tattoos. Oh, yeah, the, <laughs> the lakeside. Yeah, that was weird. <laughs> so this uh, this issue fell in that dead zone for me between when my older brothers were buying comics and I would read them and when I first started buying comics. The next issue that we're going to talk about is the first comic I ever bought off the shelf, or one of them. But really? uh, yeah, wow. so I came into this storyline later, and I think the first issue I remember buying was when Flash Thompson is quote unquote revealed as the Hobgoblin, and I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been nice to have read some of this as a kid. Uh, nine months later. That next issue that you're speaking of is Avengers 250 that sold for a dollar in October of 1984. Also written by Roger Stern. Yeah. Also written by Roger Stern, uh, loosely penciled by Al Milgram, and then inks primarily by Joe Sinnott, but then also Aiken and Garvey and Roy Richardson, uh, which is pretty stark contrast uh, when it it hits you during the issue. (laughs) And this is another one I remember reading off the show. We're, we're hitting some of my good old comic reading days. <laughs> this issue is a giant-sized team-up of the Avengers, the, the Vision-led era of the Avengers, um, and the new West Coast Avengers, whose own title hadn't started yet. They had only had the miniseries, if I'm not mistaken, and like the appearance in Iron Man and a couple of little side appearances. And they have to they uh, have to fight against this giant sized maelstrom and his cronies that he resurrects. What do you do with a giant sized villain, guys, who's absorbing power and getting big? You overload him. Exactly. It's well, the first old... you have to have a, the obligatory Avengers pool scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> Notice that. <laughs> 
Speaking Young of side appearances, you get a nice side appearance of Janet Van Dyne here. <laughs> Young Andy was particularly fond of those <laughs> those moments in, in in classic Avengers. <laughs> I like Hercules being like, "Ah, oh, it's so good to be amongst the merry halls of the mighty Avengers again." Ah, <laughs> <sighs> oh, good times. So, yeah, they just do the old feed him with power so he grows exponentially and overloads and dissipates his atoms across the cosmos thing. Um, There was a neat little side twist to it with uh, Captain Marvel, Monica Rambeau, being paralyzed by fear, and then she has to overcome it to save Tigra. I know I would. Um, Yes. Where do I sign up? (laughs) I don't know. I thought this was kind of a mediocre 250 it was cool because of the big team up between the two, but you know, the villain and the threat and you know, I don't know. It was, uh, like I said, it was just mediocre. How dare you, Steve? How dare you? (laughs) You notice in this issue, there's also a secret wars toy ad. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, I, the one thing I can say about my memory of reading this as a kid is that, um, there are a few panels I remember as being really cool, but, this was the month, where, I believe, where um, Secret Wars number eight came out, which was the first appearance of Spider-Man in the black costume. And, I mean, that, that's the standout issue of the month for me. That's always going to be the issue that I would remember from that time. And then, of course, the first X-Men issue I ever bought, which had uh, Dire Wraith's appearance in it. Mm. So that was awesome, because I was a ROM fan at the time. And, and then my first New Mutants issue... But, uh, yeah, I thought it was mediocre, too. Oh, come on, Jerry. Two pool parties. <laughs> I'm not saying it was all bad. It's just as a whole. I like know, the corresponding was... pages, too, where it's the East Coast Avengers flying on the Quinjet, all sitting in the group, and then they're all, like, show individual panels that are broken down of what they're all thinking, and then there's an exact mirrored page of the West Coast people flying out. I also like that um, Star Fox and uh, Monica have a moment about the Captain Marvel name, which <laughs> she had gotten is no longer under, but seems relevant because she's, you know, around and back and having things happening. So yeah, uh, young Andy likes this issue. So by transitive property, old Andy likes this issue. <laughs> now the Avengers go much better places after this. It's funny that you guys, uh, some of you guys, it's like one of your first issues, and first issues you remember buying. Um, this was the last of the issues of the 250s that I'd buy as a kid before dropping out in high school. Uh, so you missed all the Nebula, Siege, and all that? Jeez. Yep. And I had no idea you were a high school dropout. <laughs> <laughs> well, I tuned in and dropped out, I meant. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that I believe. Well, I hope you came in for our next 250, Steve. Well, and I've read the next bunch of stuff all in back issue. Whoa. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I was out. I was gone for for all this. Uh, I I remember the next one, too. It is in November of 1987. For 75 cents, we got Daredevil issue 250, written by Ann Nascenti, with art by the new uh, creative team of Nascenti, Ramita Jr., and Al Williamson. Yeah. Wait a second, you read 250 and you didn't read Bored again? <laughs> I just read it like last week for this. Okay. The first time I ever read 250. <laughs> I, I have a, a fond memory of this uh, Nocente John Ramita era 
And this is the only issue I've reread recently. I'm kind of nervous about rereading it, you know. I'm really weak on this run. I I read, I skimmed through some of it when we did the Daredevil retrospective last year. Uh, But I was really big on the, you know, obviously Frank Miller and then Denny O'Neill. Um, but then I was gone. I missed all this Anacenti stuff, so uh, it was interesting to read. I think the only, to this day, the only Anacenti issue I read was the the um, Mutant Massacre tie-in. Sure, right. Wow. And I did not care for it. Huh. <laughs> and the one thing I've learned reading this one is that even after all these years, Ramita hasn't gotten any better at drawing kids. <laughs> <laughs> Even with Al Williamson's help. Here, uh, can Nicente, only do so much. Nicenti opens the issue soapboxing on her views of like nuclear energy and kind of uses it as a backdrop to tell the story of this kid who's like borderline spectrum disorder or just from living alone in this weird shut-in situation he's in. I, he lives alone in Hell's Kitchen. His dad visits him and like gives him supplies and picks up his bills and stuff. It's weird. Yeah. Right, I think the whole Nascenti run is is basically social issues and weird stuff like that, you know, and Mephisto and Inhumans and other weird stuff, but and basically. Typhoid Mary, yeah, it's a lot yeah. of odd. But I thought in some ways the lawyer, the legal stuff almost never works in Daredevil, but I thought she had one of the better takes on it in general. Yeah, the status um, quo here for Matt is interesting. He's like he's out of practicing law. And and giving out free legal advice to the needy in, like, a little clinic. And the Bar Association gets word of it, and they want to shut him down because he's, you know, enabling all these people with with good advice. So they hire, uh, in a roundabout way, this bullet guy who's the dad of the weird kid who's the alone in the apartment in Hell's Kitchen. Uh, He gets hired to be security for the clinic, then then is paid to allow an arsonist to blow it up and then apprehend the arsonist so it covers all the bases, basically. And Matt's the one there, and he has to fight Bullet and then basically let Bullet walk away with the um, with the real arsonist. We, we never even see Daredevil in costume except for Karen Page washing it. Uh-oh. <laughs> That's going to draw some controversy. So yeah, there's Bullet, a lot I think, of... is... He looks very um, kick-ass-esque, like a kick-ass yes. villain, I think. He he definitely pulled from this experience when drawing that. Sure. And I love the heavy uh, flop sweat, the one in the bag. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 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 Never go wrong in comics with sweaty guys smoking cigarettes. Another thing you're not going to see. Well, if you're a fan of Did- Ditko, you got to be a fan of sweating and sweaty characters and, you know. And just the weird backdrops. Yeah. Uh, I mean, some of this is my fondness of the era, but Romina, or maybe it was the color list, or Williamson. I don't know who did the backgrounds, but the backgrounds oftentimes had this trippy sort of weird feel to the atmospheric feel that was almost uh, Spider-Man animated series style that I just always loved. But like I said, it's a lot of nostalgia for this kid. You know, I think, um, so the idea with the kid in the story is that he's kind of paralyzed by the fear of nuclear destruction, is that right? I think yeah, it was but he's vulnerable, right? Yeah, he's vulnerable to that. You know, all the other kids in the class aren't reacting to to it 
the, the information that way. You know what I mean? So there's something he's predisposed to. Sure. To I just there's I know this is a story that I've seen in at least one other Marvel comic. Like the, the they were kind of hitting on this issue at the time. There was the first Captain America I can remember reading was about a guy who kind of goes vigilante because his kid is struggling with the same problem. Um, I, and I can't remember the issue. It was like 227 or something like is that. Is that is that the a guy named Joe or whatever? Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. So that would have been long before this, I guess. But um, yeah. it reminded me of that immediately. It, to me, it just didn't feel like a big Daredevil anniversary issue. Like, you know, Daredevil... Like I said, he's not even in costume, kind of. Well, this one yeah. came a little late, but um, some of you are out of the age range, I'm sure. But in 83, there was like the day after was a oh, big sure. TV movie. So there was all this sort of nuclear scare mongering oh, yeah. Any in day. the early 80s. So Absolutely. I think if you weren't in that era, like it seems kind of quaint and funny now. But there was this real like parent like we're all gonna die at any time and well, they sure. really capitalize you remember, you remember like they're doing the drills well you'd have to yeah. get under your desk or line up in the hall like covering up and all that kind of garbage all this ridiculous mm-hmm. yeah so i think it's that some of it's just an artifact of that was what the thing wasn't like when we read the ones from the 70s and there's opaque or sometimes literal references to vietnam it's just one of those uh artifact of the time in 1989 the summer of 89 for a dollar, we've got Uncanny X-Men issue 250, written by Chris Claremont with art by Mark Silvestri and Steve Lealoha. This is the Shattered Star. No uh, reference to Shatterstar. Star. Not- <laughs> <laughs> Where's Shatterstar? That should have been the title. This one, it, it's good old X-Men Savage Land hijinks, except not that good old. No, not that good. <laughs> They're there. I, the art, it's Silvestri, and it's Steve Lealoha, uh, both real competent guys, but it's really inconsistent at times throughout this issue. There's some really, I mean, glaring distortions in form and figure. I, I mean, how loose was Mark on these issues? Well, at this point, this is right around when he started going uh, twice a month, right? Oh, yeah. Maybe that's some of it then. So, so yeah, he was really cranking him out. But I was thinking as I was reading this that um, it's such a different look with Lealoa inking him. Mm-hmm. And I really kind of dug it just because it was so different. You know, you you wouldn't know that this was a Sylvester book. <laughs> no. Unless his name was on there. I mean, there's there are panels that are you definitely see it. But um, I liked it. Cool. What it was weird I didn't dig the story. Is... <laughs> it's a. It's... <laughs> Go ahead, Dan. I must have read this thing off the shelf, but I didn't remember this issue at all. But I was reading the X Men in '89. You know, I ha- I'm sure somewhere I have the issue, and I just this is one that was totally like. Okay, I remember they did go to the Savage Land, but I remember nothing about the sequences or anything. Must be that twice a month thing got gotcha. The the nemesis here is Aladdin. The longtime Kazar nemesis, and she steals Polaris's magnetic powers in this ritual that Havoc is unable to stop. So Dazzler, purple hooded, armored Psylocke, and Colossus uh, try to infiltrate 
the area, and they also get captured by the Savage Land mutates along with Kazar and Shanna. Uh, then Polaris has, I guess, what you'd call like a secondary mutation. <laughs> kind of of the Luke Cage-like <laughs> variety, enhancement-wise. Um, and it helps her free them, and they kind of fight their way out of Dodge. And they have the side plot about uh, Gateway and all that stuff, because they were in the Australian desert. There's also that really suspenseful scene where Colossus is being controlled physically, Although he has his wits about him, so he's like grimacing and trying to stop his body from moving, but he's been ordered to kill Kazar's son and Nereel's son, um, which he's just like, please don't make me do this. And it kind of goes on for like two pages, and uh, you're like, God, somebody do something here. Well, what's also weird is, remember, I just took a break from my Age of Apocalypse read, and <laughs> holy cow, Colossus looks positively skinny. <laughs> yeah, Smell like he's wasting away. <laughs> so he's I wish that Alan was here thoughts. because um, we had him on to discuss some of the Savage Land stuff on Great Expectations way back when, and uh, we were talking about oh, about Nereal and her hookup with Colossus. Right, his first time to the Savage Land, and so I don't know how many people would remember that that happened, but um, this is pre Kitty Pride, and he was getting busy with the natives, and they're just she just so happens to have a son <laughs> named Peter, who is just the right age to uh, date back to uh, Peter Rasputin's first visit to the Savage Land, and it was Alan that told me all of this, and it blew my mind <laughs> I had no idea so when you say Nareel's son I think we are also supposed to suspect that this is probably Peter's son That's... though I don't know if she ever comes right out and tells him that right which makes that scene all the more horrific that he was ordered to crush them right right well when we have our next anniversary episode for 300 this is where the list is going to end, guys. What? Yeah. Why? But it well because of Heroes Reborn happened and uh, renumberings happened and uh, the issues that we've discussed. If I'm not mistaken, off the top of my head, I'm realizing they're the only ones to make it to 300. No, I thought uh, the Avengers gets to 402 before well, we've already covered uh, Avengers. I'm saying that's this is where the list will end. All, well, all of the issues we've discovered now. What's that? Four hundred. Iron Man never made it to three hundred. Nope. No. Nope. Well, my Iron Man makes it three thirty-two. I think. Hmm. All right. Well, maybe then there's one more. Uh, yeah. We're getting there though. Cap makes it to to what four fifty-two? Yeah. Well, we already 50, talked about 54. Cap. I'm saying all the issues we've already discussed, all the ones from here on, I think are all going to be gone by the waste wayside by the time we get to three hundred. Possibly. But anyway. Iron Man 250 was in October of 89. It was $1.50, oversized, written by the classic Iron Man team of David Michelini and Bob Layton with pencils and inks by Bob Layton. Oh, you know what that means. (laughs) It's an Acts of Vengeance tie-in, too. Surprise, surprise. It's got to be Merlin Iron Man Doom 100 issues later. I love it. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Come on now. No, Someone I can just... I can see how you could be into it. 
I, Someone I think, does not like Radio Shack. I, I, I hate Radio Shack. <laughs> <laughs> it's the same creative team as issue 150. I know. That's kind of cool, isn't it? And Absolutely. That one, and in issue 150 that we discover, discussed on, uh, what episode was it? Episode 150? Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I'll have to look it up. Just making sure you're paying attention now. They At that time, they were shunted, Doom and Iron Man were shunted back to Camelot times, where now they're being shunted to a future Camelot. I think that's a cool twist. Come on. Yeah, I, I like the, the plot. But um, super hip Merlin, yeah. I'm not feeling that. <laughs> right, right. It was silly. <laughs> And Doom is super lame until the end. In the end, he's totally hardcore. <laughs> but uh, uh, not my favorite. I do like the Prince Valiant haircut. On like they don't have to make him look like an idiot. You know, he can have a regular haircut. Right. Well, the the twist is that Arthur is like a little adolescent, the rebirthed Arthur, but Merlin's same old old Merlin. And he's Iron only Man age at this point. Yeah. Iron Man and Doom, instead of splitting sides where Iron Man's with Camelot and Doom is with Morgan Le Fay, uh, Iron Man and Doom both end up together kind of working for uh, Merlin here to thwart their future selves. Uh, so we get Andros Stark for the first time in the Arno Stark, um, you know, Barry Windsor Smith, Herb Trimpey armor from uh, the miniseries that was over a decade previous to that. So it was cool to see that armor again. And he gets beat by a guy in Radio Shack armor. <laughs> well, maybe he should have went to Star Mart instead. Oh. Then there's also this cyber robotic Doom that Doom meets and calls just an abomination and just lays waste to him. That was a great little scene. And Iron Man fights with Excalibur. Come on, that's kind of cool. How about the joke of that the, the they got to get Excalibur from the Lady of the Lake, but there's a they paved paradise and put up a parking lot <laughs> yes. right and they have to cut a hole in the parking lot and then the little hand comes out of this like little puddle and hands him Excalibur I do like that they uh, the Doom does take a second to look in the history books to find out who Iron Man is <laughs> yeah <laughs> too bad they don't okay you guys thing. are convincing me <laughs> well he also was looking up uh, who won the last 10 Super Bowls right Unfortunately, cruel twist of fate. You can't take it with you guys. Nope. All right. Even if it's silly and you didn't like it, did it seem? Did it feel like an anniversary kind of an issue? Yeah, I think so. I think anytime Camelot shows up, you know something special is going on. Especially with the nostalgia of a hundred issues before and basically the same creative team, I, I thought that was pretty good continuity there. Yeah. In two years later, in the spring of 1991, Marvel Tales, which was an Amazing Spider-Man reprint book that then became like a Marvel Team-Up reprint book, for a dollar fifty, reprinted Marvel Team-Up 100, which is, of course, Jerry, the first appearance of Karma. Right, the Claremont Miller issue. Oh, so good. Now you guys talked about that on something, right? Somewhere. Uh, there are it? reports that that happened, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know what? Alan was along on the ride for that. Because I, I, when I was reading it, I was like, wait a second, I've heard someone eloquently describe this issue before. It, it definitely <laughs> well, wasn't us on it, it, on episode 100. <laughs> Although we did mention it there. 
sped by it, huh? No, we, we, we gave it we gave it time, but you guys gave it a lot of time. Because of your love for karma. Well, well like it was, <laughs> in the hundred there must have been a lot of issues that made it to a hundred. The yeah. Marvel Tales two fifty a pretty unremarkable cover by Marshall Rogers, I thought, whose artwork I'm used to saying a lot more about. You know, I don't know. I like the karma is sort of subtle in the background. Yeah. A little too subtle. (laughs) Racer doesn't even get a cover. Jeez. (laughs) Well, that was the cool thing about this ish. Not only do we have the reprint, but we also got a new Rocket Racer backup by Tony Isabella and the unfortunately recently deceased Alan Cooperberg, who also did all that great work for Crazy with Obnoxio the Clown and all that stuff. Oh, Silver Sable International's in here, too. <laughs> Do you want more uh, Rocket Racer? Write to Marvel Comics. <laughs> that Rocket Racer backup, he fights a robot in it, and it has, like, the tone of, like, a hostess Twinkie ad. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe not quite so much gravitas, Steve. <laughs> True, not as much Twinkie. I would say it's a piece of cake, Doc. <laughs> There's also a one-pager by uh, Fred Hembeck that I really enjoyed where he's reminiscing about Marvel Tales Annual 1, and it's not even the contents of it, but instead it's like his own personal (laughs) recollection of a thing about a friend and him reading the books and an awkward moment he had with it. But I got a good laugh out of it. Yeah, Hembeck's a a treasure. Uh, Later that year, also in 1991, in September, Conan the Barbarian hit issue 250. Also wow. for a dollar fifty, yeah, that and, just keeps him chugging along. And Roy Thomas came back to the character with art by Mike Doherty and Ernie Chan Inc. So it really had a classic look and feel. I didn't know Doherty, or if I did, I forgot. He does a great job. Like, kudos to him. Yeah, well, you, you got to pace that story out, but then it, pretty much it's Ernie laying it all down. <laughs> Yeah. Because ninety one, it was me. Uh, that was about what me leaving comics. Okay. Oh, I'm back. By the way, I'm back to comics here. Oh, sorry, Steve. <laughs> I, I was. I'm still gone. waiting for the first issue I bought off the newsstand here. <laughs> <laughs> this issue two fifty was based in part uh, on Robert E. Howard's Gates of Empire, and it's cool. It was a sequel to the Black Colossus, which is a classic REH story, which was reprinted, or actually was first adapted in Savage Sword number 2, but then they also did a shorter re-adaptation of it in issue 249, so that this story ends up being a sequel to that directly, and has a great familiar cast of Friends of Conan who are riding with them, uh, Amalric, Zula, and Red Sonia, as well as Princess Yasmila. How come someone's dressed as Doctor Strange in here? <laughs> well, Steve, it's a Co- it's a Conan story, so you don't really need to give the plot. He goes after some treasure. There's a monster guarding it. <laughs> it doesn't quite work out. Conan escapes. Am I am I close? Am I close. <laughs> except it's Red Sonia gets kidnapped along with Yasmila, like as a uh, common. Uh, female in distress and he has to chase after them and they're being led to this hidden city of Kuchemis or, and there's like a whole river stick sequence with a Charon ferryman that I thought was pretty yes. uh, entertaining uh, Conan has to face a future version of himself and unlike Doom he's not so quick to 
to wipe himself out. Yeah, and like you said, <laughs> there's even a Sarlacc pit. It's just a lot. I mean, I I was joking, but I'm I'm I, I love Conan stories, and I I can endlessly read the. Hey, there's some wacky treasure out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Conan's going to get betrayed by at least some group, <laughs> either his known enemy or unknown enemy. In this case, it's a couple of his guys and his team. That, those are the ones that take Red Sonia. So, yeah. But all map. those elements always work with Conan. especially with the, the map, artists. Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> I love the map. Uh, six years later, before the next issue 250 would happen, this is in August of 1997, the spectacular Spider-Man. I've this... arrived. I bought this one off the newsstand. <laughs> and you paid way more than the cover price of 325 up in Canada, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. Probably like yeah. six bucks. <laughs> this is my first time reading this one. Oh, I, I, I remember this well. Jam to Mattis uh, with pencils by Luke Ross and inks by Dan Green and Al Milgram. This is Citizen Osborne under a wraparound cover by Ramita Jr. and Scott Hanna. I, you know the first page? I remember tracing over this page. <laughs> nice. <laughs> this yeah, is, the art is, is definitely different. How about the Malibu <laughs> coloring? The post-Malibu acquisition coloring? Um, yeah. I don't see any Sal on this thing. This is post-90s clone saga Spidey, which ended with the deus ex machina of Norman Osborn returning and being behind it all, you know, from France. Ooh, yeah, I figured that out. It's a conehead. (laughs) But here, the consequences of that leave it to Dematis to really give us a good story. They really explore his effect on everybody in the Spider cast, but he's just... uh, He's just a linchpin having been thrown into Peter Parker's world and and everything's going downhill because of it. He's like pressuring Liz Allen and her, you know, little normie. Uh, <laughs> oh, poor little no- normie. <laughs> poor everyone. Hope that kid not grows Eric. up. J. Jonah Jameson is, is sweating it out. Uh, Flash turns to drinking and beating on his child-beating father, like, keeping that circle going. Don't forget he gets caught in a drunk driving, too. Yeah. And like, I don't remember. drive yeah, Spidey flash. to assault them, right? Brutally on camera. That then, but, of course, you know he's going to use against him. Yeah. The only one in here that seems to have it well is this unrelated subplot with Craven, where he's walking around in the nude, <laughs> uh, fighting animals, and then there's a new Callisto. <laughs> Well, it's not Craven though. It's another Cravenov son, not that other Craven son where they already did that and he was pretty lame. But this one. Yeah, I couldn't believe that his girlfriend couldn't recognize him, especially after spending some time together. Yeah. And hey, we get to see a few pages of the uh, John Jameson Manwolf. Yeah, yeah, that was an ongoing uh, subplot at that point with that whole um, institution. Yeah, he looks uh, different. Well, yeah, Luke Ross for you. Here, yeah. <laughs> it's it's the seeds of Dark Rain, like the characterization and the way that Dematis uses Norman. Yeah. In this issue, Good is story. really what that whole Dark Rain status quo years later would be drawn from. Yeah. Well, I guess the at least if they're going to bring Norman back, which I wasn't thrilled with, like 
he might as well use him for some big plot, and that's what what that's what was, what was going on at this time. They're going to frame Spider Man, and then he's going to have to get other identities and all that. Well, I'm also going off memory, but didn't 200 wasn't the spectacular another uh, Goblin story? Yeah, but that one was a great one where Harry went out. Yeah, where Harry right. died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it seems like they wanted to keep. They just need to do something with little Normie. Make him like little little Green Goblin. Ooh, you want a kid on a Goblin glider? Hmm. Well, we've two issues left, but we've got to jump fourteen years from the last issue to get to the next one, and to two thousand and eleven, and that is X Men Legacy, which was previously the nineteen ninety one Claremont Jim Lee. X-Men. And this was five bucks. Written by Mike Carey with art by Koi Pham and Tom Palmer. At least the lead story. Uh, We'll get to the backup matter in a minute. But the first story is Lost Legion Part 1. And as the title suggests, uh, this involves Legion, Professor X's uh, schizoid type uh, son. Here, Professor X and Dr. Nemesis... Dr. Nemesis, discover that Legion has lost six of his subselves. So they go off to reassimilate them with uh, Legion and Gambit and Rogue and Magneto and Frenzy in tow. And in this issue, they face the first one of those subselves, who is Time Stink. Or t- <laughs> no, Time Sink. <laughs> time Sink. <laughs> oh. And oh, this is reminding me of an old uh, He-Man children's book. <laughs> There's a big chase and a melee and everything, but Legion soaks him up in the end. Uh, and, and it establishes like the status quo for the next few story arcs as they go around to collect more sub-selves. I never really dig Legion. I usually cringe when I see a Legion uh, appearance in an X-book. Um, this one was fairly straightforward, uh, although they pull the old put you in the middle of the action and you don't know what's going on and then give you 12 hours earlier, like in yeah. the middle of the issue, and then you realize, oh, all right. But yet you let me go ahead and read the Age of Apocalypse series. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, Steve did, what, wasn't, you know, he's not big on that, so he's like, you know. So this it reminded weird me... To see... The modern art, though, like in our two talking two fifties and seeing modern stuff, yeah, I dig it. Jerry, you were gonna say though? Oh, I was gonna say um, this reminded me of the whole Age of X story um, and how little I remember about it. But it, <laughs> I do want to go back and revisit that because I really enjoyed it at the time, and um, so. I should say also that Joanna Cargill is all grown up now. Yeah. Um, she she was um, a villain when she first showed up in X Factor way back in issue two or three or whatever that was. And um, uh, she has become a lovely, um, maybe heroic character that just kind of got... She was the most compelling thing going on in X-Men Legacy at the time, coming out of Age of X. And uh, she had this whole thing with Cyclops where they were in love despite barely knowing each other before Age of X and and trying to sort that out. And um, she's trying to become a good guy. And then 
uh, it seemed like they were setting that aside, and so I just stopped buying the books. But um, I kind of want to go back and revisit it now. Yeah, I only read a little bit of that and kind of glossed over it just to look at, like, it was Clay Man art, wasn't it, if I'm not mistaken? Yes. Um, yeah, I, I, I like his stuff. Mm-hmm. There's also a backup story where there's, like, a sonic trace of Rachel Summers that it's kind of, they're kind of trying to discern her location and what the state is of the um, X-Men who are lost out defending the Shi'ar Empire, part of Brubaker's fall of the Shi'ar Empire, like, connects to that, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, but I didn't remember it until you told me that. I could not remember what was going on. (laughs) And then they have a reprint of the uh, New Mutants 27, which is the first appearance of Legion, I think, the Claremont uh, Sienkiewicz um, Into the Abyss. That, that, That old Sienkiewicz, maybe it's, again, nostalgia, but I can read that stuff all day too yeah our last issue number 250 the last issue 250 that marvel will ever publish (laughs) if they have their way is uh from january of 2013 just three almost three short years ago uh and it is x factor 250 and they reached it by having returned to their old numbering with issue 200 finally shatterstar how dare they <laughs> trick us with their numbering shenanigans. The title would end uh, a year later with issue 262, but this issue ran for three bucks and is written by Peter David with art by Leonard Kirk and Jay Lyston. And this is Hell on Earth War Part 1. It yeah, I fell feel... off the book by this point. It didn't feel super 250-ish, but I gotta say, I just read it like not reading the ones before or after it. And you could kind of make it out. I mean, you had to know who some of these characters were, but yeah. got to give a tip of the hat to Peter David with like a one paragraph intro, you know, on the little title page. It felt like I was, oh, that's where we're at. And you could read yeah. and enjoy the issue, you know. Oh, yeah, I would have liked more Pip the Troll. And and you get to know what Peter David is up to with his daughter usually on those. Uh... <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> there is a big demonic volcano that rose in the middle of New York City and some beings escaped from it and stuff and one of them is this furry seemingly harmless adolescent dude Tyr and uh, Darwin um, based on the old morph character from the X-Men animated series Mm -hmm. is chasing after Tyr and trying to kill him and he kind of goes to X-Factor for uh, Sanctuary and they try to protect him and figure out what the deal is and the reason that I picked up the issue, I had been off X-Factor, but jumped back on around this time, was because they were getting back into what was going on with Guido, strong guy, being in hell. And he and Mephisto show up, and Mephisto's daughter, and they all want to kill this tear guy too, and then there's this whole war of hell that's being alluded to. Why? I don't know. This is only part one. They don't give you enough. <laughs> Like Gila, Mephisto, Pluto, Santanish, and others all show up at the end, um, and it becomes this big war of all of the different hell domains that uh, is kind of a cool premise. It's interesting. This story has always been such an insulated book from the rest of the Marvel Universe, but uh, it went out in such an epic bang. 
you know it's just didn't seem like a good fit for this book but it really was a fun ending uh and a good beginning i thought and i like that i don't want to spoil too much but this tear kid uh is a tie-in to my favorite x-men story of all time which was the uh the um new mutant special edition number one an art adams book Oh. I think that's all I'll say about it. Oh. But um that's a that's a hot tidbit that rewards <laughs> the listeners that stayed this long. That's right. So um yeah, that is my favorite story of all time. So seeing this play out over the next few issues uh, really tickled my nostalgia of whatever yeah. private parts. <laughs> Can I say private parts on here? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's Peter David for you, right? Tickling your private parts when you least expect it. Yeah. Steve, how'd you like his handling of Pip? He's a character you must have fondness for. Yeah, I do. Um, he, he didn't do him particularly wrong. Um, and I thought that Starlin was clever in the way that he rehandled Pip and referenced his time with X-Factor, too. So uh, it all works. I, I like Pip so much that I thought that he's been a cog that's been missing in the marvel universe for far too long no one else really uh touches him except for starlin so i was glad to see david do so you know sometimes with a character like that you're better off if nobody else writes them true but i like when david gets cosmic you know the the captain marvell stuff and he touched Uh, upon cosmic characters and and i think he handled them pretty well uh, I, I, and uh, you know he's the big Star Trek novel writer and all that stuff, so he's got a big cosmic side to him. He just doesn't write cosmic books usually, uh, you know, for for Marvel at least. So uh, it's fun when he does. Well, all right. Well, that's it, gang. We covered every two hundred and fifty issue that we could think of that Marvel has published. Yay! So they do uh, Thunderbolts two fifty. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, keep keep on uh, keep on hoping, I guess. Thank you guys for joining me on this project, and go read the Power Principle. Yes, you can also listen to us over on Indie Comic Book Noise, where it is uh, we use four letter words and talk about the indie books that we are digging on. And sometimes uh, video games, apparently. <laughs> Come to the Baltimore Comic Con September 25th through 27th. The guest list is getting really good. They basically, uh, without knowing, took like my top two living creators out there that I would want to be at a con and have them there. Both Jim Starlin and now Bernie Wrightson is going to be there. So I'm going to be freaking giddy. <laughs> Bernie, well, I wish nice I guy. could join you. I met too. him a, a few times out here when he used to. I think he used to live out here. Yep, he did. Now he's in Atlanta. Last I heard, but he hasn't been. You know, he's had some health stuff the last uh, calendar year. I think as recent. Um, so I'm really excited that he's gonna uh, be there and uh, to be able to uh, see him and uh, tell him how much I love him. <laughs> Good, and a boy. And with it, this being episode 250 of Marvel Noise, thanks to all the con- uh, contributors to this show, past and present. Starting off with, you know, David and Pat started off this show. Pat Loika was basically Pat Loika reading the new releases of the week on Wednesday on his way to the comic store and reading off the list and David talking about some of the books he read. It was like a 20-minute show. 
and then we got calls from Carlos uh, Carlos Cardova and uh, Chris Chavez was making uh, calls in uh, backwards Dave with the uh, you know the bring them back stuff and movie minute the, right the movie minute uh, <laughs> Professor Tom Morris Adam Bessignotis, uh talking about the trades he was reading uh, Dave K um, Andrew Shaw talked Moon Knight uh, Rick Hansen and company. Right, Chris Campbell joined us, and Alan for the uh, Fantastic Foresight stuff, and Alan joined me on lots of other segments. So thank you, everyone. Oh, and biggest thanks, of course, to the Deliberate Noise Network Grand Poobah, Derek Howard, for putting this show on all these years. You can also find us over on Twitter at Marvel Noise. We have a Facebook page that now I'm actually um, accessing and using, so uh, we will be posting images and, and covers and things over there, so check that out, even if you're not a regular Facebooker. And old episode archives are all on MarvelNoise.com. Thank you, boys, once again. All right, until there's no more wahoo left in us at all, make mine Marvel. Later.